Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Using free speech to free minds. You're listening to The David Knight Show. Okay, now joining us is the author Stephen Kinzer. His book is Poisoner in Chief, I told you about. It's about Sidney Gottlieb, uh, an amazing character. And I, I read you some of the reviews early in the program. Uh, this short description of his book, The Visionary Chemist, Sidney Gottlieb was the CIA's master magician, gentle-hearted torturer, and the agency's, quote, Poisoner in Chief. As head of the MK Ultra Mind Control Project. He directed brutal experiments at secret prisons. See, that's nothing new. Uh, he made pills, powders, potions that could kill or maim without a trace, including some intended for Fidel Castro and other foreign leaders. He paid prostitutes to lure clients to CIA-run bordellos. Again, 
So you keep seeing this same pattern. <laughs> he secretly dosed people with mind altering drugs. His 22 years at uh, CIA, Gottlieb worked in the deepest of secrecy. Only since his death has it become possible to piece together an astonishing career at the intersection of extreme science and covert action. And so joining us now is Stephen Kinzer, uh, author of Poisoner in Chief, and he's had some other uh, books that look very interesting about the intelligence community as well. Uh, so I'm going to have to uh, get you back on, Stephen, about some of those. But thank you for joining us. It's great to be with you. It's a fascinating subject. Yeah, it really is. It really is. I, I, and I want to talk about NK Ultra and all the rest of these things as well. But uh, let's give people kind of an, uh, an idea of the man himself. Uh, what was this guy like? I, I've told people over and over again, we cannot, because if you're not... Uh, kind of a, a, a sociopath, psychopath. I've, I've interviewed uh, John Kiriakou many times who was a whistleblower about CIA torture uh, program. And he said, yeah, the CIA is looking for people who are sociopaths and right up to the edge of psychopath, hopefully not over the edge. I think maybe uh, Gottlieb qualified for that. But, you know, we always underestimate th the evil that people like this are capable of. And then we underestimate the technology. But, but tell us a little bit about the man himself. What was motivating him and what kind of guy was he like? I can tell you that spending a couple of years in a, my little office with Sidney Gottlieb, more or less, as I was writing his biography, was pretty chilling. Mm. Um, you, you tend to get very close to the people you're writing about if you're a biographer. And in this case, that was very disturbing. So Sidney Gottlieb was the uh, first director and essentially the founder of the chemical branch of the CIA. He was hired uh, early on in CIA history in uh, 1951 and soon was assigned a series of uh, projects that came together as MKUltra. It, it got that name because the leaders of the CIA all agreed that if there could be a way that the CIA could control people's minds, that would be the ultra discovery. The prize would be nothing less than global mastery. So Gottlieb's assignment was try to experiment with all kinds of drugs that you can possibly think of, all kinds of toxins, all kinds of other techniques like sensory deprivation and electroshock and extremes of heat and cold and whatever else you can come up with to find a way that would destroy a human mind so that a new mind could be placed in there. After having been given this assignment, it became clear to Gottlieb that he had what amounted to a license to kill. And he was able to go to foreign countries like Germany or Korea or Japan and have the American military police who are running occupations turn over human beings to him, prisoners or refugees or people they suspected as being enemy agents. These people would then be used as guinea pigs on her, in horrific experiments that were the most extreme and intense experiments on human beings that have ever been conducted by any government agency or official. And a number of people were experimented to death. We don't know how many, but this is what I mean when I say Gottlieb probably was the most powerful unknown American 
of the 20th century. Nobody else had a license to kill from the U.S. government and went out and tormented people in the U.S. and around the world in such secrecy with such heavy official protection. But the interesting aspect, as following up on your question, is who was Gottlieb as a person? This is where the complexity comes in. So Gottlieb did not live like any other government civil servant of the 1950s. He lived in an eco-cottage deep in the Virginia woods that did not have running water. He got up before dawn to milk his goats. He was a vegetarian. He was a Buddhist. He prayed. Um, he meditated. He wrote poetry. He was active in his community. So I sometimes would ask myself, how do you fit these two parts of his personality together? He was probably the most prolific American torturer of his generation, but yet he was also this kind of proto-hippie who loved nature <laughs> and humanity. And, and so this really gives you a, 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 an insight into the complexity of the human character, and it's part of what makes Gottlieb such a fascinating figure. It's kind of like uh, uh, Mingala hanging out on Walden's Pond. <laughs> something like that. It's the equivalent. Uh, you know, that, that's really fascinating. And it's interesting that he considered himself to be so spiritual because uh, as we look at him going to foreign countries and taking prisoners and experimenting on them, of course, the thing that comes to mind is uh, Operation Paperclip and how they brought the Nazi scientists and the Japanese scientists who have been doing that type of thing over here. And they really became kind of the core of um, not the CIA, but of other operations. And you know, when I when I look at that and the people who were in, involved in, in, in using these uh, Nazi and Japanese scientists, uh, one name that I always think about is Frank Olson, who had a very close connection to uh, Scott Gottlieb, or not Scott Gottlieb, <laughs> Sidney Gottlieb. I keep getting them Gottlieb. confused somehow. But uh, the uh, he had a very close connection to Gottlieb. Talk about his connection to uh, Gottlieb. Well, first of all, when it comes to the Nazis, you're absolutely right that MK Ultra was based in large part on Nazi science. Mm -hmm. When Gottlieb took over his job, uh, he had to ask himself, like a good scientist, uh, what knowledge is already out there in this field? How do I find out everything that's known about uh, tormenting people, poisoning people, killing people, destroying people's minds? Um, and so where would he look? The people who knew that were the Nazi scientists and their counterparts in Japan. Mm -hmm. So uh, the CIA went out and hired these people, and uh, their expertise was part of the basis for MKUltra. I found one episode where a Nazi scientist was brought to the United States, for example, to uh, lecture the few scientists in MKUltra about a poison gas which we still use today, called sarin, a very potent poison. So the question was, uh, does the do you need the same amount of sarin to kill a small child or infant as you would need to kill an adult? Now, the CIA couldn't find this out because we're not going to conduct those kinds of experiments. But the Nazis had. Mm. So this guy came over and gave an explanation and said, no, actually, you don't need a, a, it's the same dose. If you want to kill an adult and a baby, we figured this all out. <laughs> so we built it on the knowledge of these Nazi doctors. And uh, when I was in uh, was researching this book, I went to Germany and I found what I think might be the CIA's first ever 
secret prison. It was where Gottlieb conducted his gruesome experiments. The young German guy who now owns this house, which is a lovely little Tudor mansion, uh, took me down into the basement. And he said, these storage rooms were the cells where Gottlieb and the Nazi doctors that he worked with carried out experiments that were actually just continuations of the experiments that those Nazis had conducted just down the road in concentration camps only a few years earlier. Mm-hmm. And of course, here's another contradiction. Gottlieb himself was Jewish. His parents had left Europe in the early 20th century. If they had not left and stayed there when the Nazis took over, they probably would have been caught up in some sweep. They could have been sent to some concentration camp. And who knows if young Sidney might not have become one of the victims yeah. of one of those horrific so-called experiments in a concentration camp. But in the event, they came to the United States, and Gottlieb didn't seem to have any hesitation about working with those very same Nazi doctors. Wow. That's uh, so that brings us, brings us up to the case of uh, Frank Olson, who you asked about. Mm-hmm. Um, Olson was one of the small group of American chemists uh, who was deeply involved in MK Ultra. He was uh, kind of one of the right-hand men for Gottlieb. Um, and he, uh, Frank Olson, as a young chemist, was sent abroad to observe some of these horrific experiments uh, in Germany and elsewhere. Uh, at one point in the summer of 1953, he apparently watched a, uh, an experiment in England in which uh, somebody was tortured or tortured to death with, with gas that Olson himself uh, had developed. That was his specialty, was trying to transform poisons into gas. Anyway, it began to disturb him. He, he had what we might today call an attack of conscience. He didn't want to do this anymore. And he told this to the CIA. He said he not only wanted to quit MKUltra, but he wanted to quit the CIA. Didn't want to do this anymore. Mm-hmm. Now, this gave the CIA a huge dilemma because if the secrets of MKUltra had ever emerged and it became clear to the world what kind of things Gottlieb was doing, it would be devastating, not just for the CIA, but for the United States position in the world. Frank Olson had secrets in his head that uh, absolutely could not be revealed as far as the CIA was concerned. Um, And we now know that uh, Olson had actually met one of his friends and asked, do you know a good journalist? So this posed a kind of a mortal danger Mm -hmm. to the CIA. And uh, what happened was that uh, uh, Gottlieb arranged for Frank Olson to be administered LSD without his knowledge uh, just at a party just before Thanksgiving in 1953. Uh, Following that, Olson had a series of uh, psychiatric reactions, partly due to his desire to leave the CIA, became very confused by various accounts. The CIA brought him to New York, and a couple of nights before Thanksgiving in 1953, he went out the window of the 13th floor hotel room in which he was staying with another CIA officer and died upon hitting the ground. Yeah, he's literally defenestrated. (laughs) Exactly. Literally, yeah. And uh, it shows you 
if, if it's true that he was killed by the CIA, which a lot of the circumstantial evidence suggests, mm-hmm. the extent to which the CIA was willing to go uh, to suppress any publication of uh, information about the existence of MKUltra. Yeah. I'll say trying to piece it together at this remove has been very difficult, and I'm painfully aware that I've only discovered a, a portion, of, a small portion of what uh, Sidney Gottlieb did and what MKUltra was, but even that small portion is quite chilling. Yeah, it's a cold case, and it's something that happened uh, back in the 50s, you know, 70 years ago. It is difficult to find that. I've interviewed myself uh, several people who were MKUltra survivors. Uh, talk a little bit, though, before we get into more of MKUltra, talk a little bit about LSD, uh, because th- this is the sort of thing that uh, Sidney Gottlieb and his uh, LSD um, uh, promotion and creation and propagation it had such a fundamental effect on society in the 1960s. I mean, he's involved with uh, Ken Kesey and so many people. Talk a little bit about the LSD thing that he was really kind of, I guess, the, the father of it, right? It's true. We can now trace a lot of the LSD culture in America and the whole explosion of its use in the counterculture back to Sidney Gottlieb, although no one at the time knew that because nobody at the time knew that Sidney Gottlieb even existed. <laughs> right. so the story is that, of course, Gottlieb was this uh, very restless intellect, always looking for new poisons, new toxins, new mind-altering drugs. Uh, he became fascinated with LSD. He thought at one time that it might be, as one of his collaborators put it, the key that would unlock the universe. In other words, the, the, the drug that would allow us to find a way to control other people's minds. So Gottlieb uh, not only was fascinated from a scientific point of view, but also a personal one. By his own account, he took LSD more than 200 times himself. Uh, But he also started out by thinking that uh, it could be used to to, to somehow distort enough people's minds so that the CIA could accomplish its goals in the world, either with individuals or with masses. So what did he do? In 1953, Gottlieb convinced the CIA to buy the entire world supply of LSD from uh, the company that made it in Switzerland, Sandoz. And that's what happened. The CIA (laughs) bought it all. It came to the United States, and it was under Gottlieb's supervision. So uh, there were two things he wanted to do with that LSD. Uh, One thing was that it should be used as part of his coercive tortures and experiments. So you could be locked into a room where it would be 100 degrees and they place you inside a coffin and they give you electroshock. Then they give you a high dose of stimulants. Um, and then they inject you with uh, sedatives and massive depression and w- depressives. And while you're on the transition phase from hyperactivity inside the coffin to uh, comatose, you get fed LSD. Would that somehow implant a new mind in you? Wow. But he carried out these terrible experiments. He's also included experiments inside the United States. I found one in which he got a prison doctor with whom he was collaborating to give triple and quadruple doses of LSD to a group of seven African-American inmates over a period of 77 days. Wow. If you can imagine that. Wow. with the goal of trying to see, presumably, would this destroy a human mind? And I'm, I'm sure the answer is yes. Yeah. Uh, we never found out who those people were, what happened to them. Did they ever realize that 
they had been given this terrible uh, overdose. Uh, so that was one half of what Gottlieb did. He used LSD in these horrifically brutal experiments, along with every other drug he could imagine and other, every other toxin he could extract from the bark of trees in Burma or the gallbladders of crocodiles from Africa, the kind of thing that he used to look for as he searched for natural toxins. Wow. But he used LSD for something else as well. He wanted to know how ordinary people in a clinical setting would react to LSD. Uh, but since the CIA does not have lots of clinics, it subcontracted this work out. And Gottlieb set up a couple of bogus foundations that wrote to major hospitals and university clinics and told them, we have this new drug called LSD. We want you to uh, test, test it. We pay you for this. What we'll do is we'll send you the LSD. You then advertise for volunteers to come in and take it. You tell them exactly what it is and what's going to happen. And then you give them the LSD and you just write up reports and send them back to us. Not, of course, these hospitals being aware that that was the CIA. So <laughs> given the generosity of the offer, many hospitals and clinics quickly signed up and uh, there, there started this series of LSD experiments where you could go in and take it. So who were among the first people that went in to do this? One was Ken Kesey, who you uh, mm -hmm. just mentioned, the author of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. He was one of the first people to get that LSD. Another one was Robert Hunter, the uh, lyricist for The Grateful Dead, who then went home and turned on The Grateful Dead and all their fans. Another one was Allen Ginsberg, the radical poet who went on to become a great advocate of LSD. None of these people had any idea where their LSD was coming from or that they were part of a large CIA experimentation project. In fact, while I was writing my book, I came across an interview with John Lennon in which he was asked about LSD and he replied, we must always remember to thank the CIA. <laughs> now, he had never heard of Sidney Gottlieb. Nobody had. But if he had, he would have said, we must always remember to thank Sidney Gottlieb. And of course, the irony of this whole story is that the drug that Gottlieb and the CIA thought might give them the tool to control the world actually wound up fueling a generational rebellion of the 1960s that was aimed at destroying everything the CIA stands for. Yeah. Yeah. Lysergic acid, diethylamide. I, I remember that they were really hitting it hard when I was in junior high school, they were very concerned about it. And of course it also, uh, was the, uh, the impetus for the drug war. You know, they scared everybody with, uh, LSD and, and things that were happening with that as, as people were having uh, bad trips and committing suicide and things like that as they were hallucinating. Uh, it was fundamental to the, uh, to the radical change of our society, wasn't it? Uh, I've got a question here uh, for you, uh, Mr. Kinzer. Um, this is from a listener who said, can you ask Mr. Kinzer if he knows anything of you and Cameron and his devilish experiments in Canada? Was that connected in any way to uh, CIA and Gottlieb? Yes, it was. Even Cameron uh, was a psychiatrist who worked at uh, McGill University in Canada, uh, and he became a contractor for MK Ultra. In fact, I even found a mysterious memo 
from uh, one of the lower ranking uh, liaison people inside MK Ultra who had gone to meet Ewan Cameron. And he said that it's uh, Dr. G's wish, that's Gottlieb, uh, that any collaboration between us be kept absolutely secret. So Cameron conducted horrific experiments on completely uh, unwilling and unknowing patients. You would go into his clinic because you had some uh, depression or in some one notorious case, uh, postpartum depression, things that are fairly normal and low level in psychiatric treatments. But these people didn't know that Cameron had secretly contracted with the CIA Mm. to carry out experiments in which uh, subjects were subjected to massive doses of LSD and other powerful mind-altering drugs over long periods, along with electroshock and other torments. There are many cases of people uh, who never recovered their functions again. We have one famous case of a young woman who was brought in for postpartum depression. By the time Ewan Cameron was finished with her, she could never hold a fork again. She couldn't recognize anybody in her family for the rest of her life. Mm. This was just the human uh, collateral damage. With Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. <gasps> no, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Of Gottlieb's reckless worldwide experiment. And I had to ask myself again, going back to the beginning of our conversation, how could a person who claimed to be such a humanitarian be such a uh, a lustful torturer? And so I never was able to figure out the answer. The the family doesn't speak about these kinds of things, uh, so they wouldn't talk to me. But I I posit one uh, possibility. So maybe... Uh, um, we have to put yourself back in the mindset of the time. In the 50s, we were told that the Soviet Union was going to come and bomb us at every moment and that so we were living on the edge of apocalypse. And people really bought into this. They really believed it. So Gottlieb, perhaps, could have thought to himself, I'm an individual. I'm a, I live my own unusual life. And I'm only able to do that because I live in a wonderfully free country like the United States. Now... The Soviet Union is coming and wants to destroy not just the United States, but the whole possibility of meaningful human life on Earth. Yeah. It would make it impossible for anyone to live a life like me or a life of any meaning at all. Therefore, the loss of a few lives or a few hundred lives, there's a very small price to pay to prevent that from happening. So if that's the mindset that the uh, threat is 
so great. Uh, we have to suspend our morality and our ethics and our laws for a moment. You can see how it plays into future generations. We heard the same thing in the war on terror, that yeah, America never tortures, America never kidnaps, America okay. doesn't have secret prisons. But in this special emergency, yeah. we have to leave behind uh, all of those strictures. And it seems like the emergencies never end. That's right. It's one emergency after the other. We can always rationalize that we just need to suspend everything and act as a dictator, act as a monster. Uh, you know, we always need to remember uh, that it is the uh, the structures that we are the first things to be jettisoned in an emergency that separate us from the monsters, that separate us from the Nazis. Uh, let me ask you this <clears throat> uh, before we run out of time here. I know you've got to go soon. Um, I was always curious about the etymology of uh, MK Ultra. What is the MK? I, I look at that and I always thought, is that some kind of an English-German thing, like you know, English mind and the uh, K for control uh -huh. or something. Is that what it is? Good, good is that... guess. Good guess, but it's not correct. <laughs> okay. <laughs> what uh, is it? So the, the CIA has a series of cryptonyms. They have a way that they come up with uh, names for their operations. And usually the first two letters refer to the place in the world that uh, the operation is planned. For example, when the United States set off to overthrow the government of Iran, in 1953, that coup plot was codenamed uh, Operation Ajax, but it was officially TP Ajax. TP meant Iran. Mm. When we went to overthrow the government of Guatemala, that operation, Operation Success, was officially PB Success, because PB was the diptych for Guatemala. Now, we, the CIA also had one of those two-letter combinations for operations that were covering the whole world. They weren't in one specific country, and that was MK. Wow. So the MK means that it was a global operation, and the ultra, of course, reflects the view in the CIA that it was the most important thing the CIA had ever done. I guess that makes... Uh... That makes sense because they don't want to have anything that has any connection at all to reality, even if it's different languages to tie it back there. So they exactly. have a cryptic two-character preface for that. Yeah, that, that I think is the key thing, the, the mind control. And, and I think we see that in so many different ways. You know, we see governments who have worked on mind control, whether it is by information tactics and psychological tactics or chemical tactics. Now we see electrical tactics being used. And, and I think it's very interesting uh, – Mr. Kinzer, the way that uh, we see the DARPA projects going now, uh, talking about how they want to uh, electronically uh, remove memories and then implant memories of things that never really happened, false memories. And say, of course, it's to help soldiers who are suffering from PTSD or something like that. They can always come up with a rationale for it. But it's the same type of thing you were talking about with LSD, that you, know, you first have to destroy the mind. You have to remove what is there and then implant what it is that you want to put in there. Uh, we see, keep seeing these same tactics uh, coming round and round. Was there anything, when you look at MKUltra, because most of my uh, most of my life, they would deny that it even existed, right? And you were a radical conspiracy theorist if you thought there was such a thing as MKUltra. Uh, but is there anything in, in what you came across that um, indicates that they were using this to program people for assassinations? Anything about catching the Rye? <laughs> uh, as I think that might have been a long-term goal, but uh, by the time that uh, movie, The Manchurian Candidate, came out, uh, the CIA had already decided it wasn't possible. Hmm. Uh, popular culture took about 10 years to catch up to the CIA. So 
to conclude that story, as you talked about, um, Gottlieb brought MK Ultra to an end in the late 50s, early 60s, um, and he essentially gave up. He, he uh, at the end, said, I, I concluded there's no such thing as mind control. A drug like LSD is too unpredictable. Um, there actually is no way to take control of another person's mind. Actually, many scientists have been telling him this, but he didn't want to listen. <laughs> and uh, mind control, it's a myth. So I thought, I'm, I'm reflecting on that. And I think he was right. I think he, he did a lot of scientific experiments. He did the worst kinds of things in the world. And even he concluded there's no such thing as mind control. However, even though he may well have been right, he was only right based on what was available in 1960. Mm -hmm. Think of all the advances in cyber technology and artificial intelligence and the kinds of experiments you're talking about that have been made since then. Yes. So although I do think Gottlieb came to the right conclusion, there's no such thing as mind control. In a way, what really should be adapted to say there's no such thing as mind control as far as we can do it here in 1960. Mm -hmm. When I research and find out everything that the U.S. government was secretly doing to find techniques of mind control in the 1950s, I think it would be naive to believe that the CIA or other secret services are not working on analogs of this project right now that could be even scarier, and that maybe it'll be another Poisoner-in-Chief book in 50 years explaining what was happening back in the 2020s. I think uh, that that book will be called Programmer in Chief. Uh, how they're going to <laughs> reprogram our bodies, <laughs> reprogram our minds, because that's what the the focus has not changed. They've had the same goals. They've used different technologies, and they're pulling in new technologies all the time. And that's the scary thing about it, because we we understand the nature of human evil, and we understand what their goals have been, and that doesn't change. Human nature doesn't change. But what is changing is the technology. We always underestimate how advanced that technology is. How, how did he, uh, how long was he at the CIA and when did he uh, retire and what happened in his, in his later life? So uh, he retired from the CIA after a distinguished career. He became the head of the uh, technical services staff, which manufactures all those gadgets and gizmos and tools that spies use. Um, <laughs> he became but, Q uh, of uh, James Bond, like the Q guy. He, exactly. <laughs> That's exactly who he was. He was the Q for the CIA. Um, oh. And uh, in 1973, as the uh, Watergate scandal was uh, spreading, 1974, uh, Gottlieb's position at the CIA became weaker, and his, uh, the, the CIA officer who had always been his kind of rabbi and unofficial boss and protector, Richard Helms, who had become director of the CIA, was forced to resign. Uh, this would have left Gottlieb exposed to whoever the next uh, CIA director was. So he decided this was time for him to quit. And so he went to Helms and said, I'm, I'm going to leave with you. And they then made a very fateful decision we have to destroy all the records of MK Ultra. Mm -hmm. So Gottlieb uh, ordered the, uh, the person who runs the CIA archives out in Virginia to destroy these boxes, and he didn't want to do it. So Gottlieb got in his car and drove out there and told him to do it. And in the archivist uh, notebook, it says that he destroyed seven crates, that seven crates of documents were destroyed, quote, over my spoken 
objection. Wow. So I think Gottlieb and Helms realized that although this is a crime, destruction of federal property is a felony, uh, the penalty for that crime is far less than the penalties for the crimes that would be revealed in those seven crates of documents. Oh, yeah. Uh, so Gottlieb left the CIA. Um, he went off on a humanitarian mission, went back to his uh, whole roots of caring for others. He worked in a hospital in India. Um, but then he got a note in uh, 1974 that somebody had figured out that he existed. And this was the, C- the uh, Senate committee investigating the CIA. So he had to go back to Washington and testify. But the interesting thing is that the senators never knew about MKUltra. They didn't want to know about it. They, the whole idea of MKUltra had not yet become clear. Almost everything that's in my Poisoner-in-Chief book had not been made public. Nobody knew that then. So they only questioned Gottlieb about his involvement in assassination plots. He was the one that made all the poison pills to kill Castro, the poison toothpaste to kill Lumumba, <laughs> uh, poison that was supposed to be put in a rice bowl for Joe and Lai. Uh, so they wanted to know about that. But so actually, is this a church committee hearing? Also, the church committee? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. But they, but uh, in those cases of assassination, Gottlieb was essentially functioning only as a pharmacist. He just made the poisons in his lab. But MK Ultra was different. It was totally shaped by Gottlieb. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the senators either didn't know about this or what little they knew led them to believe they didn't want to pursue it. And I talk a little about this in, the, in Poisoner and Sheep. How uh, the senators completely missed the point and Gottlieb lied explicitly over and over again. He said he couldn't remember who his deputy was. He couldn't remember what countries he had been in. Um, <laughs> so... Uh, he then went back to his village out in Virginia, uh, worked on the planning board, was on in local theater productions, uh, participated in the then uh, Buddhist discussion group, and was uh, seen around town with his clogs, bicycling down to get the newspaper. A very happy kind of gray ponytail <laughs> ex-hippie uh, with a deep secret. I did find a couple of people who tried to reach him, reach through the veil, with, and they were unsuccessful. One woman who was the rabbi in that town uh, said that uh, she tried to talk to him about what he had done in the past, but he absolutely refused. And, and she made an interesting comment. Sometimes I felt that he might have been just as shocked at the reports of what he had done as we were. <laughs> So uh, this is a highly complex character, and Poisoner-in-Chief is my attempt to fix his character and his uh, professional work back into the place in American history that uh, it deserves to occupy. It is a fascinating story, and and I'm sure that you only uh, scratched the surface. Before you go, one quick question. Uh, You talked about how he kind of became uh, the the James Bond Q, and he testified there at the church committee. Of course, the star of the church committee hearing was the heart attack gun that they all passed. Was he involved in the, the and that was that coming out of his department? No, no, that was something Unfortunately, else. Unfortunately, <laughs> I wanted I wanted to use that photo uh, in my book, but actually, that that particular gun was not made wow. in his workshop. Uh, nonetheless, uh, he was a highly creative gadgeteer. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'll tell you it was one funny story just to finish. Um, there used to be during the time that Gottlieb was running that was the Q, the the mastermind, the maker of gadgets for spies. It was also a period in the United States when there were a lot of spy shows on TV. Oh yeah. 
there was the man from Uncle, uh, Mission Impossible. There were like three or four of them that were very popular. Get smart. And these used to run. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was another one. This used to run. They used to run on the weekends on Saturday or especially on Sunday night. And uh, Gottlieb had an extra operator on the phone at the CIA on Mondays because agents, CIA officers, would be watching these TV shows. <laughs> And then they would call up Gottlieb on Monday and say, I want that thing. Can you make that real? That thing that I saw in Mission Impossible? <laughs> so you talk about fiction uh, imitating reality and vice versa. There oh, yeah. oh, yeah. Yeah. I wonder if they ever got their shoe that they could use as a dial-up telephone. <laughs> I was thinking of the same one. Maxwell Smart with the shoe yeah. in his pump, phone in his shoe. But uh, they probably did. It was a little bit more sophisticated than Maxwell Smart had. It was delightful talking to you. You are very knowledgeable about a very important and complex subject. I would like to get you back on and talk about some of your other books about uh, Iran and other things like that and what the CIA did there. Thank you so much, Stephen Kinzer. And uh, the book is Poisoner-in-Chief Sidney Gottlieb and the CIA Search for Mind Control. That continues on to this day. Common Man. They created Common Core to dumb down our children. They created Common Past to track and control us. Their Commons Project to make sure the commoners own nothing and the communist future. They see the common man as simple, unsophisticated, ordinary. But each of us has worth and dignity created in the image of God. That is what we have in common. That is what they want to take away. Their most powerful weapons are isolation, deception, intimidation. They desire to know everything about us while they hide everything from us. It's time to turn that around and expose what they want to hide. Please share the information and links you'll find at thedavidnightshow.com. Thank you for listening. Thank you for sharing. If you can't support us financially, please keep us in your prayers. TheDavidKnightShow.com Welcome back. We have our, our guest, uh, Dr. Ted Baer. He is founder and publisher of Movie Guide. Uh, many of you know that uh, before I got into this, uh, Karen and I used to own uh, several video stores. And uh, so I used to rely on his publications quite a bit. And uh, I'm real excited to talk to uh, Dr. Baer you know, because of the influence that our, our movies have on our culture. And that's really how he is focused. His uh, tagline is, he who controls the media controls the culture. And of course, uh, politics and everything else is, is downstream from culture. Uh, I think when we look at this, we have to um, uh, be wise consumers, if we're going to be consumers at all, of uh, media. And of course, it's inescapable that we're going to consume it. Uh, so uh, thank you for joining us, uh, Dr. Bear. Appreciate you coming on. It is a great pleasure to join you, especially somebody who uh, you know comes from the video store business. <laughs> yeah, that was a lot of fun while it lasted. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it was. It yes. was good. 
Uh, well, you know, what we have right now really is, is kind of a great reset of distribution, isn't it? You know, they, they changed the distribution. They got rid of the video stores, which they were never really very happy about, frankly. Uh, but, uh, now, you know, I think they, they put the bullseye a few years ago, many of them, uh, you know, there's a dis disagreement within the industry, but they kind of put a bullseye on the movie theaters. And now we've got, um, we got number two Regal has declared bankruptcy chapter 11. Uh, you've got number one AMC with a thousand movie theaters. Uh, they are trying to, uh, you know, issue some new financial instruments on uh, wall street to kind of keep going. Um, what do you see happening uh, with uh, movie distribution in the near future? Uh, is it going to go streaming completely? Are they going to get rid of uh, the uh, the movie theaters? Well, you know, I have a lot of uh, studio heads who speak at my class on how to succeed in Hollywood without losing their soul because studio heads usually know what's going on. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, they say that it's, it really is difficult without the theater release because uh, Streaming doesn't give you a box office. So, you know, most of the money made by a movie is overseas. And if you've ever gone to the Cannes Film Festival, which I've done a couple of times, and friends of mine are, um, you know, middle European uh, distributors, et cetera, they buy films based on the box office here. Uh, if it's an A movie, you know, they'll pay a couple of million dollars. If it's a B movie, they'll pay maybe just a little under a million dollars. If it's a C movie, they'll pay a couple of... But that's the way you sell movies in territories all the way from China to Germany to Africa to wherever else. If we're still selling in China, which is a gigantic market. So uh, people who come to me who are studio heads and the next one, I've got one of the best studio heads in the business speaking in November and uh, one of the biggest film financiers, et cetera. And they say, you know, when we try to recoup overseas, we've got to have a number. And we can't get a number from streaming. In fact, Netflix just fired uh, one of their people because he was uh, jockeying the numbers. He was head of that uh, to determine what was succeeding or not. So you don't know what's succeeding on streaming. It's, it's invisible. Right. It right. used to be more visible uh, when Facebook and everybody else was giving you uh, access to getting the numbers. But Facebook was criticized for that because it doesn't do it anymore. So you have a tremendous problem without the audience that uh, you know what the movie is worth overseas. And if 60% of the box office is overseas, you're in big trouble. Mm -hmm. So that's where we are today. We are in big trouble today, um, and it's not been easy. Now, the theatrical business is always a tough business running theaters. I had a friend who was my you know, daughter's uh, uh, godfather who was head of MGM and people like that. And he wanted to go into, you know, the movie business because they're showmen. They like to be showmen. That's what they want to do. You know, my parents were movie stars during the 30s. So and my father won the box office award and they starred in 62 movies. And then they started on Broadway. The show must go on. The grease paint, the smell of the grease paint, the roar of the crowd. Yeah. Um, I grew up in all that business. So you want to be a showman. But the theaters uh, are subject to the studios. And the studios have really created the problem here with, you know, and they've got to get out of it um, for Regal and others. Regal used to be owned by a friend of mine. And then the company before that that they bought was United Artists. That was owned by another. These were Presbyterians out of Denver. What are Presbyterians doing owning? <laughs> they, in, in the case of my daughter's godfather who bought the theater in Atlanta, you know, he bought one movie and you get to bid on them, Annie. 
And if it's a big movie like Annie, you've got to give them a hundred percent of the box office for the first two or three weeks. And if Annie is a bomb, which is what it was, it got bad reviews. Uh, you're giving a hundred percent of the box office. Nobody is coming to the theater. You've got to and make your money back through overpriced popcorn. So if people wonder why popcorn is overpriced because the theater is desperately trying to make their money back. Uh, anyway, right. we do the economics of the industry. So we do a detailed economic report and you probably don't want to hear more of that, but I can give you all the economics and it's out. And so the theaters by saying, okay, this is Avengers, this is a big movie, or this is, you know, Avatar 2 or, you know, whatever it is, uh, Tom Cruise, the latest, whatever it is. And we want 100% for the first three weeks. Well, if that movie bombs, which often they do, you know, you can't guarantee it's going to be a success. Then the theater is left with an empty theater and not enough popcorn, and they're in big trouble. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And they had a lot of empty theaters, and it's one of the things that's gotten them uh, both of these chains are about $5 billion in debt uh, because of the lockdown. But I think even more right. important than, than the and money. This, I think, and this week, yes. this weekend is going to be worse because you've got two movie God minus four. You've got Bro, which is about homosexual love and, and actually shows fellatio and all that <laughs> opening. And that's the big movie from Universal. And then you've got Smile, which is a horror movie. And two friends of mine made it, and it's it's so negative that we gave it a negative four and only uh, three stars. The first one we gave two stars uh, and negative four. So they're, they're abhorrent. They're just awful. So, mm-hmm. you know, you've got to be a real addict to go to a theater when the movie is just awful. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And, and that's why, you know, even though uh, we always enjoyed movies and we got into the movies in the mid-80s when they had, uh, you know, kind of capitulated because of the Supreme Court decision and said, all right, we'll allow the video rental business to exist. And they opened up their, their vaults. And so we were excited because we were doing all the classic movies and we had a field day with that. That was a lot of fun. But then uh, that started to die down and, and, you know, we started paying more attention to what they were putting out. And it's the content and the content has amazingly gone down and really accelerating downhill, as you're just talking about there, uh, the darkness of Hollywood. Uh, and your, your, uh, uh, movie guide, you look at, uh, not only the quality of how the movie was done, but you have a separate rating in terms of, um, uh, you know, the, the, uh, essentially the moral content of it, right? Yeah. The acceptability of the movie. And, right. Uh, With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved. We are gathered here today to, has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Uh, yeah, last year, just let me give you some quick figures. Uh, 90% of the top grossing, top 10 grossing movies of the box office contained overt or uh, 
uh, Christian or strong biblical values. Uh, 90% of the overseas, it was like one, two point, uh, uh, one billion. And I got to look at my figures if I'm going to get that correct. 2.1 billion out of 2.6 billion at the box office contained strong Christian or biblical content hmm. streaming a strong Christian biblical. Now that's not because the movie companies, which have, are insane. Uh, and I love a lot of them. I'm not trying to be mean to them. Uh, want to get that content to do well. It's because Christians, uh, like your audience want good movies. So they're choosing good movies and they're choosing them out of the, you know, out of the field of movies. And, you know, like last year, quiet place Two started off with the Lord's prayer and, you know, and, uh, Belfast Academy award winner, uh, had strong Christian content, all these movies that were good at the box office. Uh, I can go through them all because, you know, one of my favorites is Boss Baby 2, where the parents have to go undercover, and it features Christmas and everything else, to rescue their kids from a Marxist school. That <laughs> plot sounds so completely Christian that you think it must have been made by some independent filmmaker out of Texas, but it was made by a friend of mine who's uh, made the Boss Baby, and he that's his belief. So a lot of times, the Christians behind the scene in Hollywood who make these movies are not the people yelling and screaming. And it's the same way with schools and everything else. We've allowed yeah. the tail to wag the dog. And because we have not spoken up and we've let the negative nabobs and the, and the confused and the pervert and the psychopaths speak up, we've lost the culture. Well, let's talk a little bit about, you know, you, know, you see, um, uh, uh, the, the the gamut has uh, run all the way from right now we've got in the movie theaters we've got uh, Life Mark with uh, Kirk Cameron and then we have that's uh, about to stream out uh, Little Satan as I look at this based on <laughs> my experience um, there there really wasn't any uh, really good quality uh, Christian or family films when we were in the business that has really picked up and and there is some good quality stuff that's out there. But the bad stuff has gotten much, much worse. And so I look at this and I see a real polarization in, in terms of content. Uh, and unfortunately, most of it is the really bad stuff, uh, like Little Satan. I mean, how do, you, uh, how do you view this? And I think it's one of the reasons that I think your, your movie guide is, is very important, because people need to understand that uh, a well-made film that has uh, a, a really evil uh, uh, worldview with it, like something like Little Satan, uh, is... Um, is uh, something that's really dangerous because of how well it's packaged, right? Well, here's here's the story on that. They don't, uh, you know, a friend of mine was a producer of Hacksaw Ridge, and he's produced a lot of movies, and uh, he says, you know, Hollywood now makes two movies, one to make money, you know, to support 61,000 people at the Warner Brothers lot. You've got to make money. they got to get paid. The lot has to get paid. The, the You know, all of the loans and everything else have to get paid. You just said that about the theater industry. Uh, so, you know, they'll make a movie that'll reach a broad audience and they want those, uh, even streaming like Andor is a very good streaming and some of them are, are excellent. They make those to get the audience, but they also make a second category of movies to win uh, Oscars and Academy Awards. The one reason the Academy Award business is going down is since 1991, and you don't want all this background. But anyway, since 1991, when they finally moved from honoring the big movies, you know, like in the Golden Age, Sound of Music, et cetera, or my father's movies, you know, Crime and Punishment, et cetera, now they're honoring movies that are 
that are quirky because the guys who are uh, the main voters of the academy are now the little independent producers. So you make two types of movies in Hollywood. They still have to make the big ones that are clean and wholesome, and those ones will do well. You've still got Sonic coming out with marriage and you know family and trying to be good, um, but you have a lot of negative coming out. And you even have movies that are that are nice twists and turns of fate like Bad Guys. So it's not like they disappear. They need those movies to pay their bills. Um, but the audience has to be clear that there are good movies and bad movies, and you've got to choose. You know what I've said all the time? That's right. Is you can't just, you know, pay, <laughs> yeah, you know, be presumptuous. You can't just uh, stereotype because every company, you know, like Universal puts out a lot of good, faith-filled films, and now it's putting out bros, which is, you know, something that a major studio, um, it's such an evil film, um, pro-homosexual, fellatio, all of that, would not have put out 20 or 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. So they're doing both. They think that because Variety loves bros, all the insiders love bros, all these quirky people who have, who have become psychopaths themselves love bros, they want that to win an award. But as long as those people win an award, the Academy Awards is going to crater, and it's been cratering since 1991. That's right. That's right. That's what they want to see. And you're exactly right. That's what we've seen really with Disney. You know, Disney has made so much money by doing broad appeal things like Pixar used to be. Uh, but now they just can't seem to pull themselves back from doing the art house, self-congratulatory, propagandistic uh, type of films. I'd love to talk to you sometime about uh, what has happened with Disney, but I know that we're out of time. I know you only had 15 minutes today. You're very busy. I appreciate your time. Uh, appreciate you coming on again. Uh, this is Dr. Ted Bear, and he is a founder and publisher of Movie Guide. He's been around the movie business his entire life, uh, knows uh, many, many people from the inside there, and he's got the inside scoop on uh, what is happening with the films. And it'll help you to discern uh, the content from the uh, sizzle, I guess we could say, you know, the, the packaging, uh, they, can, they can make it, they can package the worst stuff and make it look really uh, sizzle and pop. So thank you so much for joining us. Very important service that I'd highly recommend to anybody. Thank you very much, Dr. Bear. Have a great day. Look forward to talking again. Thank bye-bye. you. All right. Bye-bye. Movieguide.org. Talk about good versus evil. You know, as, as uh, Christians, we need to, uh, think about what we're going to do. You know, you, you can have, a uh, couple different responses and usually some kind of a combination of those you know we can just uh, isolate ourselves and walk away uh but of course um you know christ says well i didn't come to remove the people you know my followers from the world but so we can engage in uh, the worldview we can engage the culture we can try to expose that uh some people will try to create content that transcends it and i think there's a uh, an opportunity for us to do all three of those types of things. I really hope I can get him back to uh, talk about what's going on with Disney because he had uh, uh, knew a lot of people who were in and around Walt Disney uh, back in the day. And um, uh, Dr. Bear has been around for uh, quite a while. I'll just say that, you know, what he was talking about in terms of how they would make a movie uh, for a broad audience uh, and, and try to make it a general entertainment film. <clears throat> and then they would make a movie for themselves. So one to make money, one that was the movie that, uh, they were going to make for themselves and for their peers. And that's what all these awards are about. It's really about, uh, being celebrated by your peers. Uh, our personal story about that was, uh, we, 
uh, when we got into the uh, video business, it was all VHS stuff and, and some beta. Beta was kind of on the way out, but it was still a, a factor. We got in there that early. Uh, so was it going to be beta barn or VHS village, you know, as, as the Simpsons, but, uh, we bet our money on VHS and we went the right way. Um, and then, uh, you know, as, as laser discs came out, we carried laser discs and, um, uh, because again, we would, we were focused more on catalog titles on older classic films and things like that. And, um, we had about 200 different genres at one of our stores packed into a small, uh, that that was a real. Uh, <laughs> how do you how do you convey that to people so they can find it, and how do you store all that stuff? Uh, you know, the store is about six thousand square feet, but still, we had um, two hundred different genres, and we had about fifteen thousand titles and things like that. That was how we competed against Blockbuster. They were all about the new release; we were about the catalog. But um, we would also get into the alternative. Um, media, you know, so as uh, Laserdisc would come out, we get into that. As uh, DVD came out, we we're very excited about that because of the programmability of it and the small form factor of it. And uh, as they were talking about their capability to be able to branch around things, and of course, uh, you know, you've had uh, companies like Clean Features out of Utah that uh, set up a business model doing exactly that, hated by Hollywood. Uh, so they would, uh, <laughs> uh, with Clean Features, uh, they would grab the movies and, and, uh, you could say, well, I, I don't want to see sex. I don't want to see violence. Or I don't want to, you know, this or that you could check off different things that you didn't want to see. And, um, they would, um, they had a player that, uh, they could program. And so they would come in and they would essentially on the fly make an airplane version of a film. You know, we've all seen that they would put out something that would be R rated and it might have nudity or something like that in it or some real heinous violence. And so they would edit that out or they would reshoot the scenes because you know that. And, and when they would do that, you'd say, well, why didn't they do that in the first place? Well, you know why they didn't do it. They did it because they wanted to flaunt the nudity. That's how they would get people to go to the, go to the films. Uh, but they would reshoot the films and uh, you know, without the nudity, they'd reshoot some of the same scenes and they'd create an airplane version. And uh, so you could basically create an airplane version of your own. And what they would do is you, you buy the player from them and then you would subscribe to their uh, system and you would say, well, we, um, uh, we want to watch this particular film and you download the instructions for it. And then it would just branch around those particular types of things. And Hollywood hated that, hated that with a passion. Uh, my experience with it, because I knew that existed and people were talking about that was going to be a capability. So we started renting the DVDs and I was telling customers when they're coming in the store and I talked to them about it. Because uh, I, I loved hanging out in the stores and just talking to people uh, about movies. It was a good starting point to talk to people. And, um, and so we really kind of got to know people. It's kind of like, you know, cheers where people, you know, uh, come in. You get to know them and you'd start. Kind of get a good idea. Kind of films that they like. So I was telling people that that was to uh, decide um, a if they've got the movie, and uh, you know you wouldn't uh, and something you could watch with your family. So everybody's really excited about that. So we went to a um, a VSDA convention, the Video Software Dealers Association, it was a trade organization for people who uh, had video stores that rented videos. And they would have studio heads there. And at one of these, um, 
one of these meetings, they had uh, one of these conventions. They had a guy who was from New Line Cinema. You know, they're the ones who produced um, Lord of the Rings and uh, some other things. And so he was there trying to sell everybody on doing DVD in their stores because most people were not doing it in their stores. It was still early technology. And so um, after the presentation, I went up and I talked to him and I said, um, so I've got a lot of customers. I said, I know you can have different versions. It doesn't, you don't have to have, you don't have to have two different uh, complete movies. You can just have it branch to different scenes or you can have it branch around scenes. And I said, I know that you have the capability to do that. I said, uh, you have you guys have any plans to do that? And he said, no, absolutely not. He said, uh, uh, all the directors hate these airline things. They hate that with a passion. And so he goes, we get a lot of resistance from them. We're absolutely not going to do it. It's like, oh, I was really shot down. And within a couple of months, they took a, a film. Um, I think it was called Crash. Had James Spader in it. A really degenerate film, if ever there was one. It was about some guy who follows... Uh, he, he's got some kind of a weird fetish where he follows around uh, car crashes. And he loves to get around car crashes and he finds it to be erotic or something like that. And what they did was when they offered that to us, when it came to video, New Line produced that and um, they offered their sick R-rated version and a much, much sicker X-rated version. So that you could have it is exactly what I had talked to him about, uh, about, uh, four or six months earlier, exactly what I talked about, but they went the other way. And so when you look at it and you look at Hollywood and you look at how dark these people are, and that's one of the reasons why we've seen this continual downgrade and downward spiral in the content, because as Hollywood itself gets darker and darker, their idea of a general, uh, film that uh, the public would like to see. Uh, gets even worse. And um, I was surprised. There was an excellent series uh, that was put out by the BBC. It was narrated by James Mason, and it was about the early days of movies, silent films. Uh, one of the best documentary series I've ever seen. They talked about special effects. They talked about the lighting. They talked about the camera work. They talked about what it was like to work in the early days of silent films and things like that. I can't remember the title of it, uh, something about silver screen or something like that. Uh, but one of them was about the morality of Hollywood and what brought us, uh, I think it was, if I remember correctly, the Hayes Code, uh, which uh, they didn't have that in the early days of Hollywood. And they were doing some pretty uh, uh, crazy stuff, especially considering where the country was, right? Uh, they're putting nudity and orgies and things like that in a lot of uh, early silent films. And that caused uh, the uh, Hayes Code. Uh, again, if I remember, I don't know if that, I think that's what it was. Uh, the, the code that came in that got very strict, you know. So you've heard them talk about how on a television program, uh, it was a married couple. They would have twin beds. They're not going to be in a double bed. And they had things like uh, one character had to have, if they're sitting on the bed, one character's got to have one foot on the floor, that type of thing. You know, they had <laughs> rules like that that were very specific. Uh, and that was a reaction to what had happened to Hollywood in the 1920s. Because when you bring in people who basically have a theatrical background, other things like that, that's, that's really kind of the culture that's going to be there. So you take somebody who is flamboyant exhibitionists, 
because that's what the actors typically are. And then you mix in large heaps of money and a lot of fame. These people go off the rails. I mean, it's just human nature. Very few people can handle that. And, and uh, it just destroys them, as we see over and over again. Look at all the different stars who've, um, you know, their, their personal lives are messed. They're addicted to drugs and all the rest of this stuff. I mean, we look at them and we elevate them, and yet uh, we should pity them. They have horrible lives. They really do. And you look at this documentary and say, oh, that's awful. I mean, I would not exchange places with any of these people. And if you're thinking about it, neither would you, if you really understand what's going on with them. And um, so um, that type of thing has always been there. And, and it went underground because of the Hayes Code, and people didn't see the dark underbelly of Hollywood. And yet it was getting worse and worse all the time. I think there is, it's not properly understood if you don't understand the spiritual dimension of it. And I think Hollywood has been one of the most effective evangelizing and proselytizing tools for Satan that has ever been invented. And, and it really has become dark and very, very powerful. And, um, and yet, there is, uh, you know, we are, we're not called to run away from darkness, but to confront it. And, uh, you know, we've had some spectacular successes from some very Christian films uh, where the people have gotten the, uh, the, the technical capability up. I mean, that was, there were, the first Christian films were laughable in terms of how poor they were. And uh, as the, um, the storytelling capabilities and the uh, videography and other things like that, the acting have improved. And now there's a lot of actors out there who are, are desperate to um, uh, not be a part of that culture. So uh, there is an opportunity, as I said, you know, the, the Hollywood in general has gotten so much darker, uh, but there now is a glimmer of light that is there. And uh, so it's, it's a good thing to try to support uh, some of the people who are doing the right thing. And uh, there are films out there uh, now, as I mentioned, I haven't seen it, but uh, Life Mark with Kirk Cameron, that's gotten very good reviews. Uh, it's about, um, uh, it's about a, a young guy who is adopted and, and things that are happening with his... Um... The Common Man. They created Common Core to dumb down our children. They created Common Past to track and control us. Their Commons Project to make sure the commoners own nothing and the communist future. They see the common man as simple, unsophisticated, ordinary. But each of us has worth and dignity created in the image of God. That is what we have in common. That is what they want to take away. Their most powerful weapons are isolation, deception, intimidation. They desire to know everything about us while they hide everything from us. It's time to turn that around and expose what they want to hide. Please share the information and links you'll find at thedavidnightshow.com. Thank you for listening. Thank you for sharing. If you can't support us financially, please keep us in your prayers. TheDavidKnightShow.com
All right, and joining us now is Guy Relford uh, with the law offices of Guy Relford in Carmel, Indiana. And uh, he also has a local radio show there. And uh, one of his most recent shows, he was talking about the uh, uh, the new moves by, and this is actually being driven out of uh, New York, I believe, Guy, where they have uh, demanded these codes so they can, um, you know, see what people are buying, you know, that they're buying from gun shops and, and essentially track any kind of ammunition or gun purchases. But this is part of a bigger um, agenda to, to try to identify anything uh, that they want to control. And of course, uh, controlling speech and controlling uh, guns is right there at the, at the top of this. So joining us now is uh, Guy Relford. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, it's my pleasure, David. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, thank you. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about that. Uh, what have you seen in terms of these kind of financial controls? Because that's one aspect of it, and it was the first one that was done back under the Obama administration. They started talking about Operation Choke Point, where they're going to shut down the ability to access things financially. I've been shut down from PayPal uh, because I talk about the vaccines and I talk about other things that they don't like me to talk about, uh, like gun freedom. <laughs> so, you know, this kind of financial control is now spreading and metastasizing in a very real way, isn't it? Well, it really is. And as you mentioned, uh, Operation Choke Point was a very uh, defined, very deliberate effort to go after the Second Amendment by attacking Second Amendment related businesses. And the whole idea is if we can put the gun industry out of business, we can put all the gun stores out of business, um, that we can essentially uh, do what we haven't been able to do in the legislatures, um, which is to eradicate Second Amendment rights in America. I mean, that's what they're clearly attempting to do. And, 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 and they don't apologize for that. And they're very specific about it. But it's really started with going to financial institutions, as you mentioned, David, um, and saying, you know, you just shouldn't do business uh, with any business that's associated with, with selling guns or even get this. I'm also, in addition to being an attorney, I'm, I'm a certified firearms instructor and I own a firearms training business. I, I wrote Gun Safety for Dummies um, several years ago. I've had credit card companies and financial institutions say they will not process payments for my students to come take gun safety classes. Consider that. <laughs> uh, people who just want to be safe and responsible and law-abiding citizens. I, I, I teach a class on, on gun laws so that people can stay on the right side of the law if they're going to be gun owners. And there are, there are financial institutions out there that will not do business with me, just as you mentioned, PayPal, not wanting to do business with you. I was turned down. There was a credit card processing company called Square. And they said, oh, no, you teach gun classes? We want nothing to do with your business. That's right. I've had fellow instructors. Um, one is a, is a police officer with no criminal history whatsoever. He got a letter in the mail, a certified letter in the mail from his bank, enclosing two certified checks saying, we've shut down your accounts, your business account, your personal account. Here are certified checks for the balances in each of those two accounts. We no longer choose to do business with you. And he was completely baffled. He thought perhaps his identity had been stolen or something. And he, he called them. And I, eventually, he got to the bottom of it, which is the financial institution just chooses not to do business with him as a, as a firearms instructor. So that's where it started. Mm -hmm. But now they've gotten even more specific by going um, to the International Association that deals with, with credit card processing and these credit card codes. And, and they've, they've talked them, that organization, into creating a new credit card code that the credit card company will see anytime anybody uses a credit card for any purchase. This could be to buy a T-shirt, uh, a box of ammo, um, whatever it might be, a training class. But if they use that credit card or debit card in a gun store, that credit card company is now notified with the lucky land slots you can get lucky just about anywhere 
This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. And you have to wonder, what is the what is the purpose of that? And I've got some definite theories on that. Well, I do, too. And, and I think that's why, you know, when you look at, at uh, the Second Amendment and you look at the First Amendment, those are the canaries in the coal mine. And we know that what they want to do is control everything that we do. Uh, they want to use the financial system as a, uh, as a way to track everything that we do with the central bank digital currencies to give us all a de facto global ID, uh, but to also prohibit uh, what kind of food we eat and how much we travel and what our lifestyle is. It's going to extend out to all these things. Right now, they're focusing just on free speech and on the Second Amendment, and that's one of the reasons why I talk so much about the Second Amendment, is because you, you know, th- these two areas are perceived by them to be a threat to their power, the First Amendment and the Second Amendment. And so they focus on them first and foremost, and they try to get everybody scared of, of these things, saying speech is dangerous and firearms are dangerous and all the rest of this stuff, so that they can justify coming after them. But once they come after them, they're going to go for everything else, and they've already made it clear. They're moving their agenda so quickly that it, it makes it easier for us. We don't have to <laughs> – uh, you know, there isn't any question that we are theorizing about a conspiracy. The conspiracy – is in plain sight and we know exactly where they've laid out their roadmap and and publicly talked about it so we know exactly where this is headed don't we uh you're exactly right they're not subtle about it you know as my grandfather used to say it doesn't take a gypsy to read those tea leaves uh <laughs> and and we, we you know we see what's going on you know on this credit card coding business a lot of people have come out and they said well this is a backdoor way of creating a new database or registry of gun owners so they're going to put you know they're going to put you into the this database and track and track your purchases i i think that could very well be an intent of the system but the, the breakdown on that is that the credit card company isn't told what you bought they, they've just told an amount and, and that you used your credit card at a at a at a, at a gun store mm-hmm. um and and so a database of guns it doesn't really come out of this they said well we need to track suspicious purchases What's a su- suspicious purchase? If, if I go in and, and buy a new, a very nice, expensive rifle, uh, and I spend $3,000 on my rifle at a gun store, great. The credit card company's told I spent $3,000 at a particular gun store. But they don't know whether that's $3,000 of $20 boxes of ammo or $3,000 in T-shirts or $3,000 of what? Yeah. So, so it, it, the, the, the justification for it in terms of tracking suspicious purchases so as to cut down on mass shootings, that's an ostensible reason behind this, makes no sense because how do you identify what's suspicious when all you see is a dollar amount and the fact that it, it was made at a gun store? I really think, David, and that's why I think you were wise to mention Operation Choke Point at the very beginning of this discussion. I think it goes right back to trying to put gun-related businesses out of business yeah. because at the end of the day, 
if that credit card company sees, oh, look, here's a purchase from a gun store, what do they have the option of doing? Declined. That's right. Just declined. Yeah, they want, and, to end, and, and, they want to end private ownership of guns, just like they want to end private ownership of cars. But, you know, right now they're, they're saying, well, the guns are dangerous. We've got to get rid of them because of blah, blah, you know, whatever reason. Uh, but once that what they're doing is they're also setting up this this control mechanism. And if they can come in and say, well, we saw that somebody was they want to be able to control what you buy, uh, how much of it you buy. Uh, who you buy it from and that type of thing. So if they can set up this control mechanism, say, yeah, but we're just doing this because guns are dangerous. Then as soon as they've got that up and working, <clears throat> one day you're going to wake up and find out that they're tracking the meat that you buy. And, and you know, that that is going to be extendable to every aspect of your life. And they're already talking about how they, <clears throat> how they want to do that. Uh, so, you know, when we, when we look at this, uh, there, there is definitely a, a prohibition for guns aspect to it and definitely a prohibition of speech, but it is so much broader than that, isn't it? And it really comes back to how they're using corporations to do things that uh, they are prohibited from doing by the First Amendment, by the Second Amendment. They're using corporations to censor people. They're using corporations to uh, destroy businesses. Talk a little bit about that and, and where you see that line drawn, because, you know, that's something that's kind of uh, controversial, even amongst people who are uh, supporters of freedom. Where do you see that line being drawn between what corporations are allowed to do on behalf of uh, government, even if it's even if they don't connect that, uh, make that connection there? Well, it, it's really, I think, uh, um, um, an, an interesting plan on their part, and and it, and it puts um, conservatives, and in, in particular, people like me who are you know hands off. Uh, conservatives who, who I don't want the government in regulating private industry. I want the government to leave private industry the hell alone. However, when private industry starts operating as a branch of the government, where you have the credit card industry decide that it's now associated itself with a government push to eradicate Second Amendment rights, that suddenly puts me as a conservative in a very tough spot, doesn't it? Because I, yeah. I want to say, yeah. wait a minute, the credit card company shouldn't be allowed to have these policies that, that jeopardize my constitutional freedoms at the same time they're private organizations, so it puts me in a catch-22. Am I now going to advocate for the government to go in and restrict what these credit card companies can and cannot do? Am I, am I going to push for government control of private industries? That's not, that's not in my DNA. Mm -hmm. So I think it's, a, it, it, it's nefarious, but to some degree, you have to give credit where credit is due. It's somewhat intelligent because it puts the hands-off conservatives like me in a very tough spot because they'll say, gosh, they're a private, it's like Twitter's a private entity. They can, you know, they can sanction anyone. They can censor anyone they want to. Facebook's a private entity. But then we get, it puts us in this position of, of starting to say, well, when private entities are no longer being used as a private entity, but as a branch of, of an overreaching government, yeah. then yeah. constitutional freedoms then apply to that situation because they are by extension operating as the government in order to eradicate constitutional rights. But that's, that's an argument you don't see out there very often. And that's something we're going to have to come to grips with because the more, the more big industry and big tech aligns itself with those who would eradicate our constitutional freedoms, the less I think they should be treated like private companies and private organizations and more like an extension of an overreaching government. I agree. Uh, we, we saw this with the censorship by, uh, you know, the, the internet companies and social media companies and everybody saying, well, they can do whatever they want. And at the same time, you had Jack Dorsey and multiple hearings before Congress saying we are the digital public square. And, um, you know, we, we've had situations where we've said, you're not going to exclude somebody 
Even as a private company, you're not going to exclude somebody. You're not going to kick black people out of the restaurant. You're not going to put them in the back of the bus, or refuse service to somebody like that. Uh, and so we said there's certain things that you can't do because you are in the public arena and because, uh, you know, you really don't have. And this is where I think uh, the line is drawn. I'd, I'd like to know what you think about this guy. Um, I, I've talked about it from the standpoint that. Human institutions, especially corporations that are created by, you know, given government privileges, they have privileges and they're created by humans. They're created by institutions. And so they don't have rights uh, like human beings do. Human beings are given rights by our creator, as the Declaration of Independence says. So that's something that's different. These other people who are in business, you know, when you open up a business, you get what? a privilege license. The government has given you a privilege to operate that. Whether you're operating it as a corporation or you're operating it as an individual, they recognize that they are authorizing you to do something. That comes with some requirements in the same way that when we did federal deposit insurance, it came with requirements that they couldn't engage in speculative activity. So if they've got uh, this uh, business privilege license, then there are certain restrictions about what they can't do to actual people. I think that's one of the ways that we need to to understand that. But look at the way that this is, um, you know, spread. First, it was Operation Choke Point that went away. Then they went after speech and said, "Well, uh, you know, Twitter is a just like a person, and so they get to decide who they shut out of the public square." Then it moves back to guns, and then down the road, very soon, and coming at us very quickly is ESG, where they say, "Well, we don't, you know, corporations don't really even have to." Uh, provide value to their stockholders anymore. They just need to do what the government says to do. You know, ESG, environmental and social goals of the government, you know, which is where they're headed. So I think there has to be some kind of a, we have to pull back, I think, as as conservatives and people who support liberty and free market. Uh, we have to also understand the distinction between these people who are acting as agents of the government and um, and, and these corporations that are not the same as human beings, are they? What do you think? Yeah, no, it, it really, I think it's a fascinating discussion because like I said, it puts, it puts people, um, you know, who are, are normally hands off. And, 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 and as I do, I mean, my, my foundational position, David, is that more government control of anything is always bad and less government control of anything is always good. I and agree. that's just where I start. Right. I and yeah. so whenever I hear myself advocating for more government control of anything, you know, that, that immediately sets off little triggers. Um, I think, I think, I think, the preference ought to be, and and the, where the fight ought to be first is always in the marketplace, and and let 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 capitalism, let market demand, let the consumer d dissuade these people from 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 having these people, meaning these corporations, big tech, um, big companies generally, from having policies that we as consumers disapprove of. If if Twitter lost half their followers overnight because we just said. We're not. We don't. We don't choose to engage in this because of the censorship anymore. If people stop using Bank of America or Citibank or whatever the other, uh, and, and I'm not naming them individually, but so much just by way of example, if we stop using particular credit cards, if I cancel all my credit cards from those companies that I see engaged in the businesses, um, um, in the in the practices espoused by Operation Choke Point, and 50 million other people do exactly the same thing. Can't we influence those policies? So I think I our, our first priority be ought to go to the marketplace and go to the consumer and say, you are going to make less money and, and to a dramatic extent if you engage in these practices. If that fails, because people just aren't willing to give up their credit card or people just aren't willing to give up, you know, going on Twitter and Facebook, 
I mean, as, as much as I despise the practices of Facebook, I still have a Facebook account. Mm -hmm. So I'm guilty uh, in that respect myself. If, we, if we're not successful there, I think we need to get creative and go, you know, and look at some of the options you're talking about. But man, it's tough for me to get off my foundational position of more government control of anything is always bad. Oh, that's, just, that's, a tough, that's a that's a that's a tough um, uh, issue for me to get past. I agree. Yeah, it's not necessarily telling them what they can do, but it's telling them what they can't do. And I, as way I look yeah. at it, is you've got we don't really have a free market anymore. We've the government has allowed these corporations to establish. Uh, if not a monopoly, an oligopy, you know, if you look at the social media companies, if you look at the banks, we have a few banks that are too big to fail. All these banks are getting together to push this ESG stuff. And, and we've seen in the last couple of years, we've seen corporations come out in open defiance and contempt and hatred of their customer base, you know, pushing, uh, uh some of this, uh, CRT stuff to, to a customer base. Look at what NASCAR has done, what Coca-Cola has done. You look at this and say, what are they doing? That doesn't make any sense from a business standpoint, unless you look at it and you say, well, I think we moved beyond the point where it's a free market and they have to be, and they have to care about what the consumers want. They're only pleased with one customer. They've got one customer and that's government. And if they get the government uh, happy with what they're doing, then they're going to be fine. Uh, but, uh, you know, they can get to the point where they have such contempt uh, for, the for the consumers because it isn't really a market situation anymore. So I, I think, you know, it is important for us to get back to the foundations of, um, you know, what our country is really about with, with the Declaration of Independence. And, and we need to go back and start to, I think, maybe cl uh, clarify what we understand by uh, rights and privileges and and other things like that. I've got a comment here from a listener in Australia. Thank you for the tip, Harps. Uh, he says, uh, don't let them start a firearms registry. Uh, too many times here in Australia, the info gets leaked and farmers and other firearm owners' houses get robbed. And that's the key thing that everybody should be concerned about because anytime somebody is collecting any kind of information, there's a lot of different ways that that information can be uh, gleaned and mined and cross-referenced, isn't it, uh, Guy? You know, that's no, no doubt, no yeah. doubt. You know, you know, one point uh, on our discussion on on looking into this discrimination against lawful firearms-related or Second Amendment-related businesses is, I, I went in and advocated strongly for a bill that we've introduced in Indiana uh, two years in a row now. We haven't gotten it out of committee yet, but we're not we're not giving up. Um, and that is when when talking about big tech or big companies. Just you know, discriminating as they do against lawful Second Amendment-related businesses. I think the government can provide a series of carrots or sticks, and by that I mean, uh, by way of example, the the bill we offered said, if you're a financial institution and you discriminate against a, a firearms-related industry, whether mm -hmm. it's a firearms instructor or a gun shop or whoever it is, that's fine. You can have whatever practices you want. However, you are now off the list of companies that are eligible to, biz, to do business with the state of Indiana. Mm -hmm. In other words, mm -hmm. you want your credit card to be used when people you know, renew their license plates at the Bureau of Motor Vehicles uh, or, or you know, whatever governmental entity might be involved, then don't engage in these practices. But we're not telling you what to do. You, you have whatever practices you'd like, but we will not do business with you as the Indiana state government. I love that concept because yes. that, that's, that's allowing them to have whatever policies they'd like, but it provides a big stick um, as opposed to a carrot. And, 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 and let's let free market in that aspect with the state of Indiana being a big consumer of these same services from these same companies influence them in that way. And yeah. I think we can look at carrots and sticks and having a real influence. And that's why um, I, helped, I helped develop that bill and fought very hard for it in the legislature this year. And I think we're, we have a real shot at getting it done this year. That's good. I think that's a good approach.
And in a sense, you could even look at it, you know, it's not only just a carrot and a stick, but you could look at it as, hey, we're going to remove some of your privileges. You know, you got access to this uh, database here. Well, you know, that's a privilege that we're going to grant you. But, you know, if you're going to engage in that kind of behavior, we're not going to do it. But, you know, they're coming at this indirectly through the banks. But, you know, Guy, there's been a lot of uh, action directly uh, by the ATF. Even people inside oh. the ATF have talked about how the Biden administration is pulling people's uh, federal firearm licenses over minor paperwork issues and in the past would just be a fine. So we know that this is an agenda. Talk a little bit about that. And, and what do you see there happening uh, in Indiana? Have you seen this happening there? Oh, absolutely. See, I mean, the nature of my practice, uh, my law practice is, is only Second Amendment related. That, that's all I do. Um, and so when things like that start happening, my phone rings a lot. And let me tell you, on that exact issue, David, it's been ringing a lot because for, I'll give you a good example. A gun store here locally, I'm in a suburb of Indianapolis. My radio show is out of Indianapolis. But I got um, a, a call from a gentleman who's, who's having issues with the ATF on renewing his license. And his local ATF guy, ATF yeah, think of ATF as kind of being divided into two big groups when it comes to gun stores. One is industry operations. They go in and they, they help them with their paperwork and they make sure their inventories are straight. And, you know, and, and, and they're, they're just what it sounds like. They're, they're helping the, that gun store stay on the right side of the law. And then, mm -hmm. and then there are the door kickers, right? They're the guys who carry guns <laughs> and they're, they're the guys who show up with a, with a, with an armored vest and, and kick doors in and, and, uh, and do the, the things that ATF does. Mm -hmm. In terms of the industry operations folks, and, and, and my, this gun store, this client of mine has had the same guy that they've worked with since they opened. So for years, he's been doing it for 25 years for ATF. He came in and he said, let me tell you why I don't think I can do this any longer. He said, under the Biden administration, he said, my, my job has changed. My job historically was always to come in and help you with your paperwork, help you make sure your records are straight, help you make sure you're submitting everything you need to submit timely helping you, you know, maintain your records in a, in a searchable database as you're required to do or a searchable form. He said, my job was to keep you on the right side of the law to keep you in business. He goes, since Biden's been in office, from my superiors, my job description has fundamentally changed. My job now is to find an excuse to put you out of business. Yep. Any excuse. A different gun store, something I was working on this morning before having the privilege of coming on your show. An ATF, ATF found the fact that the owner of a gun store had... A, an arrest that did not even result in a conviction. It was an arrest from 1982, <laughs> I kid you not, 40 years ago for shoplifting. Uh. Shoplifting as a misdemeanor from 40 years, literally 40 years ago, they came and they said, we will not renew your firearms license because we see this case was dismissed by something we call judgment withheld. Guy was a teenager. A lot of times I'll just withhold yeah. judgment meaning they let you off essentially the right. case is over for all intents and purposes they said well since it's judgment withheld that's still an open case they could amend the charges to be a felony which means you wouldn't be eligible to have a gun store so we're not going to renew your license from a 40 year old shoplifting charge they're going to put this guy out of business well he called me and let me just tell you they are not going to put him out of business i'm going to hang some scalps before that's over yeah. because this is absolutely ridiculous but it, it's a perfect example of how the atf now is their job is to put you out of business. So if we can use a radicalized government agency like ATF and then get the financial institutions on top, to yeah. all gang up on a given industry, including disallowing them from even using credit cards, I think that's the ultimate objective of this new coding system. They'll just start denying it charges. And now that we're going to so-called cashless society, right? Mm -hmm. What's the likelihood of staying in business if you can't use if you can't take credit cards at your business? That's right. It's designed to put them out of business. And if you and I can't go buy a gun somewhere, 
that's a great way to eradicate the Second Amendment. You know, it's kind of interesting as we see this happening. Uh, this ought to be a wake-up call to all of us to start uh, thinking more about how we're going to operate in a parallel society. Because, I mean, that, uh, you know, the ultimate approach that they want is to control everything that we buy. And when we can buy it, how much we can buy it, who we can buy it from, and that type of thing. We know that is their plan. And, and so if we can't stop them uh, with elected people, because we've got a lot of elected people who don't seem to be aware or care, or maybe they're on board with that, uh, I don't really see a whole lot of awareness or talk about that on the Republican side about how are we going to stop this CBDC stuff. I mean, that is a full on agenda from Biden. He's got every branch of government operating on that. So that's coming. But right now, you know, it's affecting just the gun stores and stuff. And so, you know, we need to start thinking about how we're going to start operating outside of the system somehow, you know, operating simply on cash or something. Uh, or, you know, if they take away the cash, you know, how we operate with uh, gold and silver or something like that. It is kind of as I've seen them lock down the schools that's that's been something that has been a boon to homeschooling people getting a chance to see what the the schools are really about uh and and uh, kind of moving them into another so we could look at this as kind of an educational opportunity we hope that we don't have to do that uh but um I've got a comment here from uh, Greg he says I've got a friend that has a pawn shop and a gun shop for 25 years recently they shut it down the feds are scrutinizing every little aspect of the deal trying to find some kind of a mistake, some kind of an infraction. Then the financial stuff started. PayPal shutdowns, credit card stuff. He finally just said, the heck with it. Uh, that, that's exactly what they're trying to do. They're trying to pressure people out. But it's not going to stop at the guns. Right now it's at the guns, and they do want to you know, ban firearms, but they want to ban everything in our life so they have absolute total control. Have you seen – go ahead. I'm mm -hmm. sorry. I was just going to agree with you and say that, uh, but it's not something I've been saying for years and years and years on my radio show and otherwise, is that gun control is not even about guns. It's about control. Yes, that's right. That's why they're, they're, they're exercising it right now. They say it's all about the guns, but no, it's about people control. When we're talking about what they're doing with the, the, um, the gun stores, there's also something else that we've been seeing uh, happening, and that is in-person visits uh, to people who have had multiple purchases. And I've played this several times where you get a knock on the door and it's like, you just recently bought four firearms. Show me your firearms. Have you had any clients that have had a situation like that? Yes. And, and there's a very simple response, which is show me your warrant. Mm -hmm. No warrant. Get off my property. Come yeah. back with a warrant. That's right. And because there's absolutely nothing about buying more than one gun at, at one time that gives any authority probable cause either for a search or for an arrest. Um, so there's, there, you know, it, it's going to be, they're going to be hard pressed to find a judge to sign off on a warrant simply based on, uh, a multiple firearm purchase. So it's, you have a warrant, no, get off, get the hell off my property end of story. Cause you That's know, right. the, the more, the, the more people say, well, I don't have anything to hide and well, you know, I, I, I lawfully bought these guns and I still have both of them. And so why shouldn't I cooperate? It's because they're asking you to relinquish your constitutional freedoms are here. We're talking about the fourth amendment. Mm -hmm. You know, they, that, that is an unreasonable search and seizure. That's exactly what the founders did not want happening. They did not want, you know, that government agent showing up and knocking on your door saying, you need to justify to me your decision to exercise a constitutionally protected freedom. That's not okay. And, and, and we, shouldn't, we, shouldn't, uh, we shouldn't concede that and we shouldn't give up that fight. And yes, I've, I've seen that happen. And the other thing that is going to exacerbate that dramatically, David, and, and, the, and the FBI is doing this. Under the auspices of this new so-called Safer Communities Act that was just passed, that, that is gun control, there's no question about it, but 
it, it expanded background checks for juveniles. And, and we're going to now look at, at juvenile records to see, well, if, if they have a violent crime when they were a juvenile, some violent crimes can now um, uh, cause you to not be able to buy a gun as an adult. So we're going to look at, at some increased juvenile records. And they've looked, they've looked at that and they said, well, we've expanded background checks. So what we now need, even though there's no real connection, it's just an excuse, is they're now telling gun stores that if the gun store gets either a delay or a deny on a gun purchase, in other words, Let's back up. The way that system works, I go in to buy a gun, then I fill out what's called a 4473 form. That's got my identifying information. Mm -hmm. It also has the information on the gun itself that I'm buying. All the gun store then sends to the FBI so that there's a background check under what we call the National Institute Criminal Background Check System. They just send my identifying information, my name, my social security number if I gave it to them, my date of birth, where I was born, that type thing. They use my identifying information to do my background check. Now, what the what FBI is telling gun stores is, well, we'll back up one more time. In response to that background check, the gun store receives one of three responses. Proceed, which means sell them the gun. Mm-hmm. Delay, which means there's something here we need to take a, 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 more look, a, a longer look at. So don't give them the gun now. We'll tell you sometime within the next few days whether you can give them the gun. Or deny, which is this guy can't buy a gun. Mm-hmm. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, by law. 18 plus. Terms and apply. See if a person now gets either a delay, which could mean simply that they're busy at the FBI, I mean, and that you'll go, go try to buy a gun on Black Friday, you'll probably get delayed. So, I mean, if it, it's a volume can cause delays. But anytime anybody gets a delay or a deny, the gun store is being told they have to, at that point, send the FBI the person's street address, their home street address. So that the FBI knows exactly where that person lives. Wow. And why do you suppose they want that information? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, my son, every time he goes to buy a, a gun, he gets a delay. Yeah. <laughs> he says, that's yeah. kind of suspicious about that. I mean, it could be that he, the time of year that he's buying, as you point out. But again, there, there's nothing uh, nothing criminal about that. Uh, and, and, you know, when you were talking about the appropriate response to somebody being at the door, I remember the very first one of these that I saw. Uh, the guy was very, you know, he, he had it all recorded on a, a, a door camera, you know, that was there. And, and when he, uh, put it back up, he says, I got really angry with myself that I complied. But he said, the reason I did it was because, you know, there's three guys there in uniform. It's kind of intimidating. All the neighbors are looking out like what's going on here. This guy's getting, you know, raided by the police or whatever. And he just, you know, 
well, I've got nothing to hide type of attitude and the intimidation that was involved in all of that. And he, and he got really angry with himself that he did comply because, as you pointed out, uh, that is allowing them to do searches without warrants and, and other things. And it's a, a very dangerous precedent that's being set there. But I've seen that type of thing, Guy, with when I've reported uh, people who have been um, uh, wrongfully accused of something with CPS. And, and one of the things that the advocates uh, for parents will say is like, I know that when they come to you and there's an accusation, you want to show that, look, I've done nothing at all. I'm completely innocent. But uh, that frequently becomes something that they use to attack you. And uh, so, you know, the appropriate response, (laughs) they're coming to your door, whether it's like, show me your guns or show me your kids or whatever. It's like, get a warrant. I'll call my lawyer. And before we talk, people shy away from that because they think, well, that's that's like it looks like I've got something to hide. No, we have to keep these people um, obedient to the law because the worst kind of criminal is a government criminal. When the government is acting criminal, acting outside the law, that is the most dangerous kind of criminal, isn't it? It is. And and listen, I, I say often and I couldn't agree with you more on this point. What I've said to people often is what we need to get our heads around is that innocent people have constitutional rights too. And, and this whole idea of, well, I have nothing to hide, um, so I'll just you know, roll over on any government request to search my vehicle, search my home, you know, demand by ATF to show guns. Um, no, as an innocent person, I also have constitutional freedoms. And, That's right. and, and our founders of this great country wanted us as innocent people to be as protected as people who did have something to hide. In fact, mm-hmm. uh, perhaps even more. Um, where probable cause a crime has occurred is an exception, right, to mm-hmm. a prohibition against a search or a seizure. So, so, so the idea that 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 I, I don't have anything to hide, so I should I should willingly give up my constitutional freedoms. That's as repugnant uh, to me as as it could possibly be, because the, the the founders wanted me to have the same freedoms and wanted me as an innocent person with nothing to hide, be able to stand on the Constitution and tell the government to go pound sand. And, and and government, I'll, and I'll even I'll give, I'll give, you, give some some inside baseball here. There's something that law enforcement. I've seen this in traffic stops over and over. I've seen it on on personal visits when they come to someone's home. Law enforcement officers, and and I've seen this in some of the videos of ATF showing up at people's houses after uh, either a denial or a delay now or with a multiple gun purchase. But they'll show up and they'll use the phrase, "David, I'm going to need to." They'll say, "I'm going to need to search your vehicle." Yeah, right. Yeah. And it yeah. sounds like, well, you've they've got a right to search my vehicle. So they're just telling me they're about to search my vehicle. And then what do I say? I'm, you know, I'm going to need to search your vehicle, sir. I'm going to need to see those two guns. Mm-hmm. Well, that sounds like he has the authority to demand that. So I then say, okay, or, you know, a traffic stop, you know, I'm going to need to search. You know, I see a guy that your license plate says 2A attorney, which it does. Right. So he mm-hmm. says, well, that gives me a reason to believe there's a gun in your car. So I'm going to need to search your vehicle to find that gun. OK, <laughs> I'm going to need to. If I say, oh, well, you're going to need to. So you're not asking my permission. You're just telling me what you're going to do anyway. And I say, OK, mm-hmm. he gets me out of the vehicle. He searches my vehicle. His police report will be written exactly like this. That consent to search the vehicle was requested from the from the individual. The individual then gave permission and for the you know gave consent to the search. You can always consent to any violation of your constitutional rights. Mm -hmm. As soon as I say okay to I'm going to need to, they will write it as I gave consent. That's a very important point, and I've had that be pulled. And and I speak to law enforcement officers a lot on constitutional rights, and I'll say I know what you guys do. You use that (laughs) phrase essentially to trick people into giving consent when they're not really giving consent. They're just acknowledging something that you've said. 
and they all smile and, and, and wink and look at each other like that's exactly what we do. And look, I, I don't think law enforcement officers are necessarily out there you know, trying to frame innocent people necessarily, mm-hmm. but I think an awful lot want to stretch what they're allowed to do under the Constitution as far as they possibly can. Maybe they justify that saying, well, they're trying to catch bad guys. But guess what? In the meantime, if you're violating my constitutional rights, that's not okay. So I'm going to need to, should be always be responded to as, if you're asking me for consent, sir, I do not give that consent. That's right. Or, uh, but first, I'm going to need to see your search warrant. <laughs> that type of thing, right? That's a better response. I wish I'd said that. That's exactly right. Yeah, I remember years ago, a really egregious case uh, in New Jersey. Uh, a guy was moving, uh, and he had a concealed carry license and all this other kind of stuff. He was moving from one state to another state. He stopped in New Jersey uh, to visit relatives. He was late. They were concerned about him. So they called the police. The police pulled him over. They saw him and pulled him over. And then they said, I'm going to need to search your car. And he had in his trunk buried under uh, clothes and, uh, all kinds of stuff that he was uh, carrying locked in the trunk. They found a gun and, uh, they came after him. They wound up putting him in jail, you know, because, uh, New yeah. Jersey rules and things. So yeah, you don't need to show them anything they need a search warrant that's that's you know, exactly the key thing. yeah new jersey I, my the story that i always tell from new jersey is absolutely true is a person was flying from minnesota to pennsylvania and they had legally declared a firearm in their check bag because they could legally carry in minnesota and they could legally carry at their destination in uh uh where they were flying to in pennsylvania and so they declared their gun which is all according to tsa regulations and whatnot but because of weather, they got diverted to Newark. Mm. And so he had to land in Newark. It was the last flight in. There were no more flights going out. So they said, well, we're going to put you up at the airport hotel. Since we're putting you up at the hotel, we're going to give you your, your luggage back. So you've got your toiletries and a change of clothes and whatnot. Guy spends the night in the airport hotel. goes back to the ticket counter in New Jersey and says, I need to declare the unloaded firearm in my check bag per TSA regulations. There's a cop standing right there who says, I'm going to need to see your handgun license, wow. your New Jersey handgun license. He goes, well, I don't have a New Jersey handgun license. Took him to jail. Wow. And wow. he goes, he goes, I didn't want to come to New Jersey. I was not, <laughs> I was not my intent. Nobody wants to, to go to New Jersey. Nobody ever wants to go there for any the airline reason. brought me yeah. to New Jersey. I didn't want to come to New Jersey. And they put him in jail. Wow. So, I mean, that, that's what we're faced with within some of these states. Wow. Well, we got an election coming up. I mean, what, what is on, uh, is there... Is there anything concrete? You know, we, we've identified a lot of problems. Have you seen uh, GOP politicians identifying these same problems or other things to roll them back? Well, what are what are your expectations? I mean, we're we're hoping that um, uh, that uh, the, the House is going to uh, turn uh, perhaps and shut down some of these things. But, of course, the dangerous thing is that Biden is still going to be there. And even if you had um, Second Amendment supporters, uh, you know, and, you know, you had GOP who really supported the second amendment and they had a majority in both the house and the Senate. We've now established this idea that, um, the president can do gun control by executive order that was set up by Trump. And now, uh, Biden has done that with a brace, you know, Trump did it with a bump stock. Biden did it with a brace. Now he's done it with, um, uh, you know, uh, something else and, and indicates that he plans on continuing to do that. I mean, where are we politically? What, what, what how do you see this as somebody who, focuses on this uh, uh, very closely. I think that all our, our real advancement on Second Amendment rights, where we actually, you know, we actually move the needle in advance of, of our rights and, and in furtherance of our rights, that's all going to be done at the local level. 
um, at the state level and the local level. I, I you know, where Good. Indiana this last year became the the 24th state to adopt constitutional carry. And, and after we did, Alabama did. So now half our states in the country have constitutional carry. So you don't have to go beg the permission from the government to exercise a right you already have, which is to bear arms or mm-hmm. carry a firearm. Um, to get Congress, if we, I say we, if Republicans uh, take a majority in the Senate uh, and the House, as you said, you're not going to get anything past a Biden veto for two years. Uh, unfortunately, where I think, um, there's a huge failing in the National Republican Party is that even if we see, uh, you know, a, a, a President DeSantis uh, or, or, or Trump again in 2024, uh, I don't think this Congress and Republicans in Congress, the majority of them, or at least enough of them, have a real will to advance our rights because they're so deathly afraid of being criticized for somehow, you know, enabling the, na- the next mass shooter, right? They, they, I they, agree. They, 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 they are so afraid of being connected to some act of violence out there, even though that act of violence is solely the responsibility of some lunatic, mm-hmm. you know, who, who, who wants to go murder people. And, and, and people simply um, blame the instrumentality. Our, 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 our national politicians are so afraid of that connection that uh, I don't have any real optimism in, in getting like something like national reciprocity, which just makes sense. If if my driver's license is recognized in, in, in all 50 states, why shouldn't my 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 carry license yeah the carry right. license yeah. is harder to get than a driver's license for sure <laughs> exactly well, in fact and, and i gotta tell you the obergefell decision on gay marriage however anybody feels about gay marriage take that you know issue off the table the analysis of why every state not only do states have to marry people of same sex according to the supreme court in that decision but why every state has to recognize those licenses of same-sex couples under under 14th amendment principles the court's analysis is directly online. If you took marriage license out of those two paragraphs of the Supreme Court's opinion and put in carry license or license to carry handgun, it reads perfectly under the analysis that they laid out. Mm-hmm. It, it, and so I would like to litigate that issue and win it. But failing that, there's no reason why my carry license shouldn't be recognized in all 50 states. That just makes sense. We've had bills pass in, in, in the House and not get through the Senate in the past or vice versa depending on majorities. There's no reason that shouldn't happen. It should happen as soon as Republicans have control of the government again. Do I have any faith that will? No, because I, I think our, our GOP uh, politicians at the national level just simply lack courage on the Second Amendment. Oh, I agree. Yeah, yeah. Where is the bill to outlaw uh, SUVs uh, because of the Waukesaw, you know, killer gunning, uh, you know, running people down at the Christmas parade, right? They didn't do right. that. They didn't bl- blame yeah. that instrument of death. Of course, they do want to outlaw SUVs, but for different reasons. <laughs> Let's not push yeah. that analogy too far because they just might take us up on that. But, you know, I think no you were absolutely right when you said the, the good stuff is going to come at the local level. And, and I think that's even true. Even when you look at Obergefell, you know, when they when um, uh, when you had uh, Scalia and Thomas, especially Thomas talking about. Uh, Roe v. Wade, he said, look, there's cert- certain things that need to be decided at the state level. And and even they recognized that the Supreme Court had overstepped its authority in terms of defining that. But, you know, once they defined it, you got a marriage license here, you got a marriage license there, you got a carry license there, carry license there. That's true. But I think the real power uh, and, and what the conservative movement should really be doing is, is trying to do things at the state level and asserting the Tenth Amendment to say we have these uh, these powers and this has not been delegated to the federal government. And so even if Biden does some kind of gun control by executive order, not just vetoing, 
uh, what um, you know uh, the Republicans might do in the Congress. But if he proactively uh, creates some new kind of gun control by an executive order, because that's a uh, Lala Harris uh, promised to do that when she was running for president. She said, I'm going to give them 100 days, and if they don't do what I want, I'm going to do it by executive order because Trump had done that with bump stocks. And so, you know, he'd set the precedent. Uh, she was going to carry through with that. The way you stop that is with the 10th Amendment, isn't it? Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Yeah, it absolutely is. And I got to tell you, I mean, to, to get completely on a philosophical uh, soapbox, um, I think the greatest travesty in in the, the the many years of this country has been what the Supreme Court has allowed Congress to do under the, the Commerce Clause. Mm-hmm. That the, the Commerce Clause simply allows Congress to regulate any damn thing it wants to if there's some remote theoretical, hypothetical connection to interstate commerce. That's never what the founders intended in the Commerce Clause. And what they intended was the meaning and the intent of the Tenth Amendment, which is exactly as you laid out. It's either expressly, specifically, yes, uh, within uh, within a constitutional delegation of authority to the federal government, or they don't have that power. I mean, I, I tell people, and they they look at me like I'm crazy. I said, "Do you know that there is no police power delegated to the federal government in the Constitution?" That's right. They look at me, and go, "How could that possibly be?" I mean, we have more people running around with federal badges and guns than we have United States Marines, yeah, right? right? I mean, the FBI and the ATF and, and postal inspectors that are armed. I mean, we have, we have, we have more people running around with federal badges than we have United States Marines. And there's no federal police power that founders always intended the police power to reside in the States. And we have turned that on its head. Um, and, and that, and I think that's the greatest travesty in, in a man and that combined with the fact that we've allowed through the executive branch, the creation of what is really a fourth branch of government, which is executive agencies. Yes. And we've given yes. them legislative ability. We've given them judicial ability, which means they can interpret their, not only their own regulations that they pass, but their own delegation of power. They can, <laughs> that'd be nice. I, w- I wish I could define my own delegation of, of, of authority from that my wife gives me, right? I, don't, <laughs> I, I know what you said, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to define that however I want to. Um, and then they can obviously execute, which, which is their only job is defined by the Constitution. So we've given all three um, uh, uh, constitutional powers, legislative, judicial, and executive, to this fourth branch of government. And that's why you have a rogue ATF. That's why you have yeah. a rogue IRS. Um, and and I'm, I'm hopeful. I have some vague hope, a glimmer of hope, that this this uh, West Virginia v. EPA case that just came down this term under this Supreme Court, and I'm excited about this Supreme Court, they came down and they said, oh, hold on, there has to be an express delegation of authority by Congress to the administrative agency, to the executive agency. You can't just make it up as you go. That's right. And I read that and I said, oh, let's talk about ATF now. 
because we got to rein those people in too. And that's just, you know, that's, that's what my, my particular ox being gored. But, but that, that gave me a glimmer of hope that this Supreme Court may start reining in on this, this absolutely unfeathered, unfettered delegation of authority to federal agencies, because that just scares, not only as a Second Amendment advocate, but just someone who, who, who loves freedom oh, yeah. and loves the country. That, I think, is our greatest threat right now. Oh, I absolutely agree. I, you and I are on the same page. I have talked about that for the longest time about how they basically have become little governments, each, each of them to themselves. You know, they write the rules, they enforce the rules. They, you have no, uh, because they call it a rule, because they call it a civil rule. They say, well, it's not a law because it wasn't passed by your elected representatives. So you don't get any presumption of innocence. You don't get any protection against excessive fines. And we will determine what is there. You know, we, we've gotten into the situation guy. I always talk about, I say, we, we now not only have taxation without representation, but we have regulation without representation because that's what these people have done. The, the Congress has really abdicated all this stuff. Remember when Nancy Pelosi said we have to p pass it so we can find out what's in it? And everybody said, is she crazy? What's the matter with her? No, that's the way the government works. They pass these broad <laughs> guidelines and then they turn it over to the bureaucracy and the bureaucracy fills in all the devilish details. That's the way the thing, she was actually being honest with people for once. <laughs> totally. And, and by the way, then the elected official has no accountability because when that's we right. don't like what the IRS does to us or the ATF does to us, if we don't like that, we go and we say, we don't like it. The government official says, well, that's, that's the FBI or, you know, that's the ATF, that's the IRS. I didn't do that. Don't vote me out of office. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's a way to, to, to avoid any accountability for what our government is doing to us. And, and consider, cons, con, consider the, the, the word you mentioned, the Declaration of Independence. And, 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 and I always go back, not, you know, the, 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 the wording that even though Biden can never remember it, right? But the, 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 the primary you know, phrase that people talk about with, you know, the unalienable rights and endowed by our creator. When, when people, people think about that, you know what I think about? I think about that governments are, are instituted among men deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. Mm -hmm. From the consent of the governed. I think about those words all the time, David, yeah. because, because when the IRS does something that, that, that causes me real, a, you know, real harm, I mean, it takes money out of my pocket, could potentially put me in jail, mm -hmm. right? It, it, how do I withhold my consent? Like my elected official, I can say, well, I don't like that vote on that bill, or I don't like that bill you introduced, or I don't like the fact that you refused to support my bill in, in that committee hearing that I watched. So I'm going to withhold my consent from you in the next election. Mm -hmm. And, and that, that's what the founders had in mind. How do I do that with these administrative agencies? How, how is an administrative agency accountable to the government such that we're either giving or withholding our, the consent of the government? That's our system of government and this fourth branch of government through executive agencies has eradicated. I, people talk about the founders spinning in their graves. I think this would be the number one thing that would, would cause them torment, no doubt. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. They, they put their rules through a comment period. And, and you can comment if you know about it and then they can look right. at it and say, yeah, I don't care. <laughs> Just pitch it over their shoulder. You know, that's that's I guess their their little uh uh, ritual to, to pretend that they're somehow, uh, you know, under us, but, but that's a key thing. You know, when you talk about, uh, the, uh, how many people and, and all these different federal bureaucracies that are armed as the report came out, you know, more than we have uh, armed Marines and, uh, we have all these different armed bureaucracies and, um, there's not really anything that, uh, uh, Congress is doing to keep them under control for years. You had, uh, Rand Paul, 
introducing the RAINS Act. He did it on a, a regular basis when he first became senator. And there would be people in the House that would introduce the same thing, but they could never get uh, any uh, anybody to really help them much. I mean, there just really wasn't a consensus uh, for doing anything about it because they can always come in. And first of all, they, as you point out, they deny that they've got any responsibility for it. But if it gets really bad, they can come in and pretend they're going to protect you from this, like some kind of a knight on a white horse, right? Uh, oh, I saw how the bureaucracy got after you. Well, we're going to fix that, you know, when they shouldn't have never, they should never have let the bureaucracy get that far out of hand. Exactly. And, and that's why, again, th this, this EPA v. West Virginia case um, by this Supreme Court does give me that little, little glimmer of hope because this is where the EPA was just making up I think it was clean air. I always get clean air and clear, clear water turned around, but they just made up, I believe it was a clean air regulation within EPA such that they could put people out of business, companies out of business mm -hmm. with this regulation. Mm -hmm. and, and they said, well, we're the EPA. That's what we do. And we're, we're going to pass this regulation. We're going to enforce this regulation. And this Supreme Court said, hold on, we can't find an express specific delegation of authority from Congress to you to do that. That's that good. thing right there. That's not okay. That's inconsistent with the Tenth Amendment. That's inconsistent with the limitation on express delegation of power to uh, to the executive branch. Um, and while Congress can delegate its legislative authority, and as you and I have been discussing, does far too often, we're going to make them expressly and specifically do that before we let an, a regulatory agency run wild. And I, that's that that's music to my ears, even that's though good. I have you know no direct uh, involvement in, in EPA regulations mm -hmm. as far as my law practice goes. That extends to all, all walks of life for Americans if we can start reining that in. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We saw a lot of that during the, uh, the, you know, this pandemic stuff and the CDC putting on moratorium on evictions and all that kind of stuff. Grabbing power, they'll take it whenever they can get it, anywhere they can. It's great talking to you, Guy. And, and tell people, you got uh, the Gun Guy podcast, right? Uh, is that uh, anywhere you find podcasts? Where, where can people find you? Yeah. It's out there. It's on iTunes. It's on Omni. It's I think it's about anywhere you find podcasts. What that is, is I have a live radio show in Indianapolis, David, on Saturday afternoon. People can listen to live at WIBC.com. And then each show we post as a podcast uh, out uh, various places. But it's a live radio show, and then but, but people can uh, find that podcast on iTunes or Omni or any, any of the other platforms. Oh, that's great. And is your radio uh, program, is that on the internet so that people can uh, join it and make comments online or something yeah. like that? Good. Yeah, okay. WIBC.com. All right. Absolutely. Well, it's great talking to you. Thank you for what you're doing. Uh, it is really the tip of the spear in terms of freedom. Uh, they're, they're setting up the examples uh, coming through Second Amendment, coming through the First Amendment. So it's very important what you're doing. Thank you so much, Guy. Gun Guy. Thank you. It's an honor to be here. Thank you. The Gun Guy Show. Thank you very much, Guy. I appreciate that. Uh, in the little bit of time that we got left, I would just want to uh, talk about this particular uh, essay from Dr. James Alexander. He said, there is no coherent conservative doctrine. So arguing about what conservative, how conservative leadership candidates are is pointless. This is coming out of the UK. And as this guy is talking about the history of conservatism in the UK, he says, well, so what is it? He said, um, there is a phenomenon which we'll call X, and this, is, this X is the resistance of society to taxation and to coercion. So is that what conservatism is? He goes back and he looks at the history of conservatism. He says, you know, what conservatism has come to mean, really, uh, he said in 1826, you had uh, John Cam Hobhouse joked about the existence of His Majesty's opposition standing against His Majesty's government. 
but people immediately recognized the truth of that system. Government and opposition were no longer the government, the court within, and then the country that was from the outside. It wasn't this juxtaposition. Both of them were within the same system. And furthermore, he said, um, originally conservatism was compromised, even corrupt. He said, men who had opposed the French Revolution uh, now accepted these things, like the Reform Act. They'd been convinced not by truth, but by time. And conservatism became a word for the attempt to recognize the political significance of time. I think that's a very important insight. Because I've talked about it for the longest time. The problem with conservatism, and I, I say it often, I say, well, you know, they, the Democrats have become the communists of my youth, and the Republicans have become the Democrats of my youth. Uh, we see this continual movement, this ratcheting, if you will. Uh, the conservatives will resist what the left has put in until enough time passes. <laughs> and then they, they will never go back to the previous state. They try to always conserve the status quo. And so they're convinced not by truth, but by time. And we need to get past that kind of thinking. Well, that's it for the program today. Thank you for joining us. Common Man. They created Common Core to dumb down our children. They created Common Past to track and control us. Their Commons Project to make sure the commoners own nothing. And the communist future. They see the common man as simple, unsophisticated, ordinary. But each of us has worth and dignity created in the image of God. That is what we have in common. That is what they want to take away. Their most powerful weapons are isolation, deception, intimidation. They desire to know everything about us while they hide everything from us. It's time to turn that around and expose what they want to hide. Please share the information and links you'll find at thedavidnightshow.com. Thank you for listening. Thank you for sharing. If you can't support us financially, please keep us in your prayers. TheDavidKnightShow.com And joining us now is Christian Gomez. He writes for the New American. He had a, an article. I, I covered this a, a few weeks ago. Um, uh, I, I cover the Constitution of States on a regular basis. Uh, but um, uh, he was talking about, and uh, this update to it, uh, how this is being, uh, how the John Birch Society is being uh, represented uh, by the Council of States, some of the people who are the Convention of States, uh, the people who are pushing this constitutional convention. 
I think it's something that we all need to be aware of, and I think that uh, New America and John Birch Society have uh, done a better job than anybody in terms of nailing this. This is something that's been going on for quite some time, uh, but it's a very dangerous idea, I think. So uh, joining us now is Christian Gomez. Thank you for joining us, Christian. Thank you for having me on today, uh, uh, David. Thank you. Let, let's talk a little bit about uh, kind of the history of the Constitutional Convention. We've had one of them in the past, right? Uh, and, and that's kind of insightful as to what might happen with this one. Uh, does that cause you a little bit of concern as to what we saw with the original constitutional convention and these other calls for it? Absolutely. So as, as we all know from, from history, there was the first constitutional convention, the federal convention of 1787 in the state of, um, in, in Pennsylvania, specifically in Philadelphia, where the convention delegates from 12 of the 13 states met because Rhode Island didn't want to participate. They wanted to keep the Articles of Confederation. But nevertheless, all of the state commissions and the resolution passed by Congress at the time reminded all of the delegates that would be assembled there at that convention that they were going there for the sole and express purpose of revising the Articles of Confederation uh, to make amendments to the Articles of Confederation to improve it. And when they were there, uh, many of the delegates admitted that they didn't have the authority to do more than just make amendments, but they did so, unfortunately. Well, I guess not unfortunately. It was fortunately because we got a better document. We got the U.S. Constitution, but they didn't have the proper legal authority going in in terms of uh, what they were told to do by their sending states and by uh, the Confederation Congress or Congress Assembled, as it used to be called. So uh, they created a new constitution, and when they ratified that constitution, the one we have, which is a which is a better document, of course, they ratified it using Article Seven of the U.S. Constitution. Article Seven states that uh, that conventions of nine of the states will be sufficient to ratify the U.S. Constitution, but under the Articles of Confederation, which was still the law of the land, so to speak. Article Thirteen of the Articles of Confederation specifically stipulated that any alterations had to be made by the Congress assembled and then agreed to by the legislatures, not conventions, by the legislatures of all of the then 13 states. And the Constitution was ratified, um, completely uh, ratified, before the ratifications from, from even North Carolina and Rhode Island. In fact, uh, the, the first Congress under the Constitution and George Washington's inauguration occurred before Rhode Island uh, had uh, ratified the U.S. Constitution. So. The learning from history, the fear is if we have a new convention today, whether you call it a convention of states, which I think is an erroneous name, or a constitutional convention or amendments convention, whatever you want to call it, the fear is that they, that the current delegates would hearken to the, the idea of the sovereign will of the people to say, hey, you know, our constitution needs more than just amendments to fix it. We have all these problems with the Electoral College and balanced budget, whatever excuses that they'll, they'll use, uh, abortion, whatever issue side they want to take on that, and say, oh, we just need a whole new constitution and, mm -hmm. and produce a new constitution. And rather than using three-fourths of the states to ratify it, as Article 5 stipulates, they'll appeal to, in the name of democracy, perhaps say, oh, let's have a national referendum to ratify the constitution. And in fact, most of the world's modern constitutions are ratified through national referendums. And considering the results of the 2020 election, I think many of us would pause at the thought <laughs> of having a new constitution voted on in a national election. Yeah, you know, and, and that's the thing. When you, you look at, as you point out in that history, 
once they started this convention, they just rewrote all the rules. Uh, they were not going to use the, uh, they were not going to modify the articles of confederation. They were not going to use the process, uh, uh, that uh, was required to modify it. They just uh, rewrote everything from the get-go. And so a lot of people will say, well, you know, this is, they mentioned having a constitutional convention to modify the Constitution, but there's no definition really of how this works. Well, I think a pretty good definition of how this is going to work is to look at what was done to create that document by the people who said, oh, you can have a constitutional convention. You don't like the one we just had? Uh, so I think maybe that, that is very insightful that, um, you know, you're just going to completely reset the table. You know, uh, Christian, earlier in the program, I was playing a, uh, a long statement that was being made by Joe Biden to uh, John Roberts as part of Roberts' confirmation hearing back in 2005. And in it, he was lecturing over and over again. You could, just, you could see the contempt for the Constitution that Joe Biden had. You know, this horrible document, look at all the wonderful things that we've done. And we did that because we ignored the constitution. Look at all the horrible things in our history. And those were all there because the constitution didn't, didn't fix it. And so I want you to know, uh, judge Roberts, that you're going to be faced with all kinds of things like implantations of microchips and all the rest of this stuff. And you're going to be ruling on that. And, uh, I just want you to know that, uh, you're not going to be held, uh, uh, prisoner by this written document. You can just make this kind of stuff up. These are the kinds of people that are going to be writing a new constitution in a constitutional convention. They don't obey the constitution as it's written. And, and they take pride in the fact that uh, in their mind, it's a living document. So you can only imagine what these people would do in a constitutional convention where all the rules are gone, right? That's absolutely correct. Uh, if you look at uh, what uh, the late uh, Supreme Court Justice um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg said, she said that when she made rulings, she didn't even look at the U.S. Constitution. She looked at the constitutions of South Africa or the constitution of the European uh, Union's uh, you know, human rights document instead uh, for ruling. So we have justices on the left, especially, who aren't who are already looking at foreign documents to guide them in their principles. And look at Judge uh, Justice Roberts, um, Chief Justice Roberts, nominated by Republican George W. Bush, and he was the one who gave us, he was the one who somehow found the, uh, to, uh, the constitutionality of same-sex marriage yeah. uh, in there. Somehow he found it. I have found it, but uh, he did. So these people do have contempt for the U.S. Constitution, and they would be the ones, uh, or at least a type of people, maybe perhaps not the same people, because Bader Ginsburg has passed away, of course, but these would be the type of people, that kind of mindset that would go into the convention today. We don't have George Mason's and James Madison's and um, right. people like John Lansing, these other famous delegates that, that we know from history. Uh, we have people who think uh, the, that we have a democracy rather than a republic as our form of government. And these would be the people crafting, whether it's new amendments only or a brand new constitution. Either way, it's a scary thought for uh, what would emerge from such a convention. Yeah, you know, you go back, you mentioned uh, uh, Ginsburg saying, yeah, I don't even take a look at the Constitution. And you go back and look at Roe v. Wade 50 years ago, and they begin that decision by saying, you know, it really doesn't matter. We could look at all these different things. We could look at other countries' uh, laws, and we could look at their traditions and other cultures' traditions about uh, abortion. But, you know, we have to make this decision as a Supreme Court based on what the Constitution says. And, that, and then they ignored 
anything about the Constitution and did uh, exactly what they said. We could look at all these other things. They looked at all those other factors, right? And and uh, came up with their decision about Roe v. Wade that was completely divorced from any constitutional considerations except for that uh, nod at the beginning. But now they don't even bother to do that. And, and so this... Um, Convention of States, this constitutional convention, I like what Phyllis Schlafly called it, a con-con, because it is a big con job. But it's really coming from uh, conservatives. It's coming from Republicans. Uh, talk about who supports it and the justifications that they're putting out there, uh, Christian. Absolutely. So the, the biggest proponent right now we see for a convention, it, most of the loudest voices are coming from people who claim to be on the right conservative Republicans. Uh, so they claim, right? So people like Mark Meckler from the Convention of States organization is one of the leading uh, voices. And if you, if you look at the 990 tax documents from that organization, uh, you see that they pay hundreds of thousands of dollars in consulting fees and, and speakers fees and whatever other fees they're, they're using to, to, to label it uh, to various people who've come out to endorse the concept. Oh, surprise, surprise. Uh, people like the former U.S. Senator Jim DeMint, for example, even people like Mark Levin, who is a big proponent of the convention, wrote the book Liberty Amendments, and they've paid him uh, quite a quite a, a large share of, of money uh, to support the convention of states. And if you look at yeah, even writing a Meckler, book, talk, talk a little bit about Mark Levin's book. I'm not familiar. I know that he wrote a book uh, to, to push the idea, but talk a little bit. Tell people a little bit about what is in Mark Levin's book. Just very succinct. Well, he's written several books, but very succinctly, the key book is uh, the Liberty Amendments, plural, right. uh, book that he wrote. It was several years ago, around the time the Convention of States was founded. So around that 2013 mark. Uh, anyway, in the book, he Mark Levin outlines uh, a number of amendments that on the surface may sound pretty conservative. But when you delve deeper into some of those amendments, they actually would expand the power of the federal government. Um, for example... Uh, Mark Levin and also uh, many of the people who attended the so-called Convention of States mock simulated convention that they held, they proposed an amendment where uh, the states could override a law from the federal government. Three-fifths of the states can, nullify, can uh, override or nullify a federal law. On the surface, that sounds good until you realize, wait a minute, right now under the present Constitution, under Article 6 and the 10th Amendment, we can one state alone can nullify an action from the federal government and say, no, that's unconstitutional. We're not going to abide by it. So that raises the threshold even higher. Uh, they also they also propose limitations on the on the power of the executive branch in terms of uh, executive orders. Well, the executive orders are unconstitutional to begin with. So if you <laughs> limit them, you're accepting that they exist in the first place. There shouldn't be any executive orders um, to begin with, at least none that have the power of, of law. Like if the president wants to make an executive order saying everyone from the Department of Energy wear a blue tie on Thursday, okay, whatever, who cares? But when it comes to making using it to enact legislation, like we've seen so many presidents on both sides uh, of the political spectrum do, uh, that's clearly unconstitutional. And uh, the amendments that they propose, perhaps unintentionally, maybe they're, they're sloppily written, perhaps you could say at best, but at the end of the day, they expand the power of the federal government, and all you need. Well, yeah, well, you know, we talk about executive judge. orders, Christian. I, I, I begin my show every day with a countdown uh, from the mm -hmm. amount of time that we've had since Trump did that executive order, national state of emergency over COVID. Uh, it's now 915 days ago on a Friday, the 13th, of March, uh, 2020, and um, it, it's interesting that uh, this um, uh, this uh, student loan uh, thing that's just been put out by Biden. If you stop and think about it. 
what he did was he created uh, a um, he created a new uh, entitlement program. Uh, everybody's entitled to get this money back if they meet a couple of different uh, criteria that he's put out there. He did it by executive order. And, and so he's created an entitlement program by executive order. And Christian, he, his uh, Department of Education based that on the ongoing COVID uh, national emergency executive order that Trump put in 915 days ago. So they are pyramiding and stacking these things. It's a bipartisan thing. It goes from administration to administration. And, um, and, and it, is a, uh, it is a horrific thing. But as you point out, it's unconstitutional. They should not be allowed to give themselves this, this type of power. Yes, I'm glad that you brought up uh, President Trump's uh, executive order making COVID-19 a uh, national emergency. Mm -hmm. That's an excellent example why we shouldn't have the balanced budget amendment of that. Many conservatives are, are hawking, so-called conservatives. I know it sounds like a good idea. But yes, the, I, we at the John Burgess side and the New American admit that Congress is a runaway Congress and they have runaway spending. That is true, but a balanced budget amendment is not the answer because all of the balanced budget amendment proposals that have ever been put out, they all, they all include a provision for in the event of a national emergency, you don't have to abide by this. So essentially, by, yeah. cre by building in a loophole, you're constitutionalizing a method to never balance the budget. So uh, you know, Thomas Massey has described it this way that if they had that balanced budget amendment in the Constitution, uh, the Congress, day one, the first vote would be, well, obviously it would be the Speaker, but the second vote would be to declare uh, war on a foreign country or declare something to be a national emergency automatically so then they wouldn't have to balance the budget. That would be the very... Um, first vote of consequence in, at the start of any Congress. That's right. Yeah. The emergency so, doesn't we, even have to be real. You just declare it. And, and you know, we, we've got three dozen, uh, executive orders and national emergencies that are ongoing now from, uh, since this whole thing started back in 1976. So yeah, it's, uh, uh, that that would be no problem at all to get around it. The, the real, and, and that gets to the real issue of all this stuff, Christian. And that is the fact that uh, these people don't want to follow the law as it is. And, and they're the last people in the world that I would want to have write the Constitution or rewrite the Constitution. Uh, that, that's the key thing. These people have no integrity, who have no intention of following the Constitution. Everything that they have done is a, a, a device to, uh, to get around uh, the Constitution, and they openly oppose it, as, as Biden did uh, 17 years ago in the, in the Roberts confirmation hearing. Absolutely. Then if you look at the folks who are, uh, it's not just Mark Meckler who's behind it, but uh, there's another organization not as well known called Let Us Vote for a BBA that wants a CONCON uh, as well. And uh, the two co-founders of that are a man named David Bidoff and David Walker. And um, David Walker in particularly, he was uh, a member of the Trilateral Commission, uh, which was an organization which believes in one world government. And the Trilateral, he was also the comptroller for the U.S. and the Clinton and George W. Bush administrations. But uh, David Walker is a strong proponent of a balanced budget amendment. He was a former member of the Trilateral Commission. Now, the Trilateral Commission was started back in 1970, in the, in the 1970s, about 1973, if I recall, if I recall correctly, uh, when David Rockefeller created it, when he, after he had read the book um, by Zbigniew Brzezinski, Between Two Ages, which calls for uniting the communist and non-communist world. And the, as the first step towards achieving that, having a trilateral alliance of the U.S., Western Europe, and Japan, and that that network has to be solidified. And the first step to do so was the creation of a trilateral commission. Well, that same book, 
Between Two Ages on page 258 of the first edition, which is the, the hardcover edition, and the author, Zbigniew Brzezinski, specifically calls for a national constitutional convention on page 258. He says a good time would have been either in 1976, because the book was written in 1970, or the 200th anniversary of America's founding, or 1989, the 200th anniversary of the Constitution's ratification. Obviously, those dates came and passed, and they, we didn't have a new constitutional convention then. Uh, you know, Praise the Lord that we didn't. But however, what was happening just around the 1970s and 80s was the BBA movement, the movement for a constitutional convention for the specific purpose of having a balanced budget amendment under that excuse, that really took off. So while they didn't get the outright convention in 76 and 89, the movement for a balanced budget amendment became the uh, uh, the impetus for calling a convention. And even today, Convention of States, that's one of the main amendments that they're uh, peddling is, oh, we need to have a fiscal restraint amendment, balanced budget amendment. Uh, that's the number one amendment along with term limits that uh, that they're always pushing. And we can talk about term limits if you wanted to as to why that would be a bad idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If we talk about the balanced budget, I mean, you know, how are you going to balance it? Uh, are you going to cut spending in agencies or are you going to increase taxes? That's the other thing, right? They could use that as an excuse to uh, uh, raise uh, taxes to such a confiscatory level uh, that, uh, you know, uh, Biden's army of uh, 90,000 auditors could take everything that you've got. <laughs> I mean, you know, this is... Uh, uh, th that's these are are, are fake solutions uh, to real problems. When the reality is, is that if these people wanted to solve these things, the tools are there. Just just like you mentioned about nullification, it only takes one state on a state by state basis. These states could uh, nullify anything the government is doing because of the Tenth Amendment. Uh, it just they don't have the willpower to do that. I've talked about that and mentioned it again today, Christian, when I was talking about. Uh, abortion. I said, you know, the appropriate response to Roe v. Wade was to assert the 10th Amendment and to stop it. Texas could have uh, saved lives over the last uh, 50 years, but they didn't do that. And they waited for the Supreme Court to tell them that the 10th Amendment says that uh, you can do that. And, and so they, they play this game partly because they don't have uh, the backbone to take these issues here. But let's talk a little bit about uh, term limits, because that was one of the things, you know, they're, they're starting to talk again about having a uh, kind of a contract with America. Uh, you've got Kevin McCarthy saying, yeah, we're going to put, uh, I forget what they call it this time, but it's, uh, uh, he wants to come up with a plan that they're going to offer, you know, vote for Republicans to try to nationalize the election in the way that uh, Newt Gingrich did with his 10-point plan uh, contract uh, for America. And uh, one of those uh, things that he had on his contract, which of course they promptly forgot about, was the uh, term limits. As soon as they got elected. They, that was the first item they throw off as term limits. So yeah, talk a little bit about term limits because that's, you know, these people that well, we just can't summon the will to, to do term limits. So we're going to have to uh, create something that has power over us that forces us to do a term limit. Talk a little bit about that. Well, yes, of course. Well, the, the idea with term limits is that we have all these bad rascals in Congress. So if we just term limit them out, all, automatically and magically, we'll get these fresh new constitutionalists who replace them. And that's that's kind of living in fantasy land, because look at the example of uh, let's just take Hillary Clinton, former first lady. She then becomes the, the senator for the state of New York. Right. She runs for president, loses to Barack Obama. But Obama graciously nominates her as secretary of state. So she resigns as the senator from the state of New York. Now, she was elected 
in the 2000 election to the U.S. Senate in New York, and she was re-elected by the voters of New York in 2006. When she left to become Secretary of State, creates a vacancy in her seat, uh, in, in what was her seat. Uh, so Christian Gillibrand becomes the new senator for New York. Now, at the, free, at the New American, we have something called the Freedom Index, where we rate the, the constitutional fidelity of members of Congress based on the top 10 votes they, they cast in the last uh, quarter of the Congress or half of the year, last six months. And if you look at the scores that we have for Christian Gillibrand and Hillary Clinton, just because you can go back and look at former members of Congress, uh, Gillibrand's score is virtually the same as Chuck Schumer's score, which is a, a very dismal uh, low score. There's no difference. So even though Hillary Clinton term limited herself by leaving the U.S. Senate, she wasn't replaced by some constitutional uh, conservative Republican or uh, someone who respects uh, you know, the constitutional limited government. She was replaced by the same voters got to reaffirm the choice of Gillibrand in uh, in the subsequent election. She's been reelected again several times. Uh, so if you term limit out an AOC, a Nancy Pelosi, a, a Chuck Schumer, who replaces them? Yeah. Uh, they'll be replaced by a younger version of that same person, perhaps <laughs> even more to the left. And because they're younger, they'll likely be there even longer uh, than would uh Schumer or someone who was already up there in age who might have been who might have left in the next election because they would just decide to resign. So now we're building up a new leftist globalist. The real solution isn't term limits. That that that's that's just a, a bad band-aid that, that falls off right away. What we need is to educate the electorate. Because without an educated electorate about the issues, they're gonna keep electing um bad individuals to represent them. Someone like AOC is elected in her district. Because the, the constituents that she represents, uh, the majority of them at least, do not understand or appreciate the Constitution. So they will vote for someone like her because it reflects their lack of understanding of the Constitution. Whereas in a congressional district like one represented by Thomas Massey, let's say, his constituents have a better grasp of the Constitution and they reelect someone who um, represents the values in our Constitution. That's right. Yeah, the, the whole fantasy behind that, as you're pointing out with Hillary Clinton, uh, the whole fantasy is, is that, well, we got somebody that's bad. Uh, we're going to get them out of government and she doesn't get out of government. She keeps going from place to place, you know, uh, she just changes where she is. And, um, uh, so th these people are not necessarily going to leave government, uh, when they're there. And, um, and so that's another part of the aspect of that. that I think is that is difficult. Uh, where are we right now in this process? Uh, because, um, it's, uh, I I've seen some press reports from the people who are supporting it, uh, talking about how they're adding States one by one and getting momentum. And we're seeing more talked about it all the time. Uh, where are they in this process? There's several different organizations behind different particular, uh, worded applications. So the, the, uh, the, uh, the, the, the position held by, Almost everyone in this um, in this in this fight for a con con, whether you're for it or against it, is that the application wording has to be the same. So um, when you look at an organization like Convention of States, they have 19 states that have passed their particular worded application. So they only have 19. But another organization on the left that wants a convention uh, is called Wolfpack, and they have far less states. I believe maybe three <laughs> appropriately or four named. states. That's appropriately yeah. named. Yeah, the Wolfpack. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and actually, the Wolfpack organization is very interesting because uh, it's um, the creator of that organization. The founder is Senk Uger, who's the host of the Young Turks program. Oh, yeah. And yeah, uh, Senk, 
I, I call him a stink Uger and I call him the program, the young turds, but yeah. I, <laughs> so, so he wants a convention. He got the idea for a convention at, at, at an event called the Harvard or well, at the conference on the constitutional convention, the con 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 at Harvard university that was co-hosted by uh, Mark Meckler from Tea Party Patriots, who later founded the Convention of States Organization, and also by a liberal Harvard law professor named Lawrence Lessig. Lawrence Lessig is the advisor to Wolfpack, and he is very good, fr very good friends with uh, Mark Meckler. In fact, Meckler has gone around the country touring with Lawrence Lessig, a liberal law professor who wants a convention, uh, debating in front of groups of people and convincing them that the way to solve all the problems is with the convention, where everyone on the left and the right can come together, sing kumbaya, and we can, you know, um, fix the problems of campaign finance reform and, and balanced budgets, you know. But the thing is, when you look at Lawrence Lessig, he wrote a paper in 1993 about the subject of translation, and he argued that the U.S. Constitution, as written, should be rewritten because it's written in a language that we no longer understand. So in 1993, <laughs> Lawrence Lessig called for a brand new constitution. He's the lead guy, along with St. Uger, promoting the convention for Wolfpack. And he's really close friends with Mark Meckler. So when Mark Meckler tries to accuse the John Birch Society of being on the side of the left because we oppose the convention that he's peddling, he, he's actually the one going around with Lawrence Lessig, uh, an avowed leftist who ran for president, by the way, as a Democrat. In the um, in the 2016 election and, and failed, and also who's a who attended a Bilderberg Group meeting, Lawrence Lessig. So wow. this is the kind of company that Mark Meckler keeps in peddling the idea of a convention. And, and Mark Meckler, you said it was a Tea Party. <clears throat> I don't know him. I don't remember. He, yeah, he started the Tea Party oh, Patriots okay. organization before he left that right. to start the uh, Convention of States project in 2013. So that was my problem with the Tea Party from the very beginning. Uh, you know, taxed enough already. Okay, well, you know, uh, what what is your solution? And they didn't have any solution. I mean, there was a, it was just a, you know, taxes are too high. You know, it's like the guy that uh, ran in uh, for an election. I forget what he's running for uh, in New York, and it's like the rent's too damn high. That's all he would say. You know, and and it's like, okay, so what do you want to do about it? And and uh, are you talking about rent controls? Uh, are you talking about uh, getting rid of? Um, uh, the government restrictions so people can have a higher supply of uh, places to live, you know, getting rid of some of that co that's causing the uh, stuff to be more expensive. Uh, the Tea Party never really offered any solution. That's why, you know, you look at the John Birch Society. They said, all right, here's the problem. Here's the principles. Here's a solution. Tea Party is just like, well, I don't like this, you know, and, and it never had any intellectual core to it. I, I knew it wasn't good. That's why I didn't even know who the guy was. I never, it's like, well, what are these people? Well, they just think we're taxed enough already. Well, it's like, yeah, everybody thinks that. Uh, but, um, it was, uh, essentially a, a, uh, non-solution from the very beginning. So there's, uh, essentially that group. And then the, um, uh, the, uh, the, uh, convention of uh, the COS is that convention of States, I think is what it is. Uh, yep, and convention uh, of states. so there's the two of them, the convention of states has, has 19 states that have signed on to theirs. The other one has only four. Is there any other groups that are pushing for a, uh, constitutional yeah. convention? There's a group called let us vote for a BBA. That's the one that has David Bidoff and David Walker. And David Walker is the individual who was a former me member of a trilateral commission mm. and served in both the Clinton and George W. Bush administrations. Um, so that group is, is, is fighting specifically for a BBA. Uh, and there are some other smaller groups that are around as well, but the, but really the, it's the Convention of States is the largest organization 
uh, pushing for it. On on the right, and the largest one on the left is one called Wolfpack. Okay. And um, and there's also another other groups on the left, like Move to Amend wants a campaign finance reform amendment. So they use uh, they, they say they want it through a convention. And then the the the, the very Marxist news magazine called The Nation. Uh, back in 2018, they had an issue where they came out in favor of a constitutional convention to have all of these changes to the Constitution, including abolishing the Electoral College, campaign finance reform, codifying abortion, and all these uh, leftist, uh, um, uh, you know, uh, wishes and so forth, uh, tr- transforming the U.S. formally into a democracy. And what's funny, in that article in the Nation magazine from 2018, they quoted, Mar- they, they had a little quote from Mark Meckler on the corner of the of the or the first or second page of the article to push forward the idea that yeah it, it's time to just change the rules and break down the the system completely and just start all over again. So uh, it's interesting that they would quote Mark Meckler in a, in a Marxist publication. Yeah, I think if uh, if the nation were able to uh, have a a role in this, I think they wouldn't call it the Constitution; they called it a manifesto. Uh, <laughs> I would wind up with um, so. Uh, it, to, uh, to get to this uh, point, so the, the real threat seems to be coming from the COS uh, because they're the ones who are starting to, uh, uh, to get, you know, at 19, uh, they have to have, um, you know, uh, what, what is the number? 34. They've got 34. So they still got a ways to go. Uh, how does it look in terms of the remaining uh, states, the remaining 15 that they've got to have? Yeah, they. Mark Meckler, uh, in his in recent interviews, he's discussed that they are going to uh, target states like Virginia, which they expect uh, to have both legislatures be Republican, because th- they typically go after the Republican uh, legislature-controlled states. So they're going to focus on states like Virginia, Montana, South Dakota. Of course, they tried it several times in a row to get it passed in places like South Dakota and Montana, and each time have failed uh, to do so, not because the Democrats stopped it, uh, but because conservative constitutional Republicans stood up against it in the state of South Dakota, when uh, constitutionalists defeated it there in that state, Mark Meckler went on the radio on uh, Mark Levin's program, actually crying like a baby, discussing how they wouldn't even uh, they wouldn't even debate the subject. They wouldn't even uh, debate the bill, which is ironic because in that same state of South Dakota, um, uh, one of our uh, JBS constitutional educators and experts and former regional field director for the John Birch Society, Robert Brown, who's, uh, who's done so many videos on this topic for us on the ConCon, he's an expert on the field, uh, he has challenged Mark Meckler to a debate on multiple occasions, and Mark Meckler has refused. Um, <laughs> and, and there are other friends on our side who have likewise challenged Mark Meckler to a debate, like Sean Meehan of, of a good, very good organization that we recommend called Guard, uh, Guarding the Constitution. Sean Meehan has uh, challenged Mark Meckler to a debate, and Mark Meckler has refused. So Mark Meckler will will sound like he, you know th- this is this is the right solution. But when it comes to actually debating the, the individuals uh, who can challenge him on it, he he runs away in the other direction. And right now he's got former U.S. Senator Rick Santorum uh, peddling the convention alongside of him. And when you look at Rick Santorum's voting record, go to the freedomindex.org or thenewamerican.com. Click on the Freedom Index. Type in the name Richard Santorum in there, and you'll see his Freedom Index score was dismal in the 60 percentile area. That's 63, 65, 68 percentile area. Uh, when you look at his votes, this was a guy voting for unbalanced budgets, for uh, massive deficit spending, and now he's going around saying, 
oh, the problem is that, you know, we, we, we don't have these amendments in the Constitution. It was the lack of amendments <laughs> that caused me to be so reckless in the past. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Put me in there and we'll get this fixed. Now, of course, you know, the one organization, uh, uh, let's vote for a, a balanced budget amendment, their single issue. Uh, but the Council of, uh, Council of States um, or Convention of States, uh, they, they're not single issue. They've got several different issues. What are the other issues that they've got besides the balanced budget amendment? Yeah. So they have, they have a balanced budget amendment, also fiscal restraints. They have the term limits for, um, it's funny. They, they don't specifically say term limits on Congress. Well, they do say term limits on Congress, but they also talk about term limits for members of the federal government, which could be interpreted to mean the bureaucracy, which they're not really terms. So how do you term them out. But mm -hmm. nevertheless, that's that's one thing Meckler's talked about. But some on the left could jump on that because there's many on the left who've been saying we need to term limit the Supreme Court now that it's mostly uh, Republican appointed uh, justices. Uh, so th so there are Democrats who certainly jump on board with that one. And the other uh, big one in the Convention of States uh, application is very vaguely worded as uh, limiting the scope and jurisdiction of the federal government. And, and as um, as Robert Brown has explained in our JBS videos in the past, you a, a limit doesn't necessarily mean that it's lower. You can raise the limitation of the government's <laughs> power. It doesn't always mean you can lower it. So Mark Meckler, he'll go around these interviews saying, oh, if they try to increase the scope of the government, well, that'll be thrown out because it's not germane. Well, I, the question I have to him is who will throw it out? He assumes and he wants his supporters and those watching him to assume that the convention will be controlled by uh, conservative Republicans only, no Democrats will attend. And if Democrats do attend the convention, they're just going to go along with whatever the Republicans are doing, and they'll be absolutely powerless because of the letter of the application says, oh, it has to be germane to only this, as if Meckler's interpretation or supposed interpretation is the only interpretation that will be there. Look, if there's really a convention, uh, states like California are going to send delegates, states like Michigan, states like Hawaii, New York, Rhode Island. Uh, New Jersey, they're not going to send cons cons constitutional Republicans, even so-called. Yep. Well, it looks like we had a, a freeze there, um, but uh, that was an excellent point he uh, finished up on. I had a couple other questions I wanted to ask him, but uh, see if you can uh, reestablish contact with him because uh, it looks like we lost that. Uh, but that's exactly the point. When he talks about Rick Santorum, big advocate now for the uh, Constitutional Convention, uh, because we've got to have a balanced budget, and yet he never voted for it. Uh, these people don't support the Constitution when they're there. Uh, there is an alternative motive of this, and I think that is a very dangerous thing. And again, I think the reason I wanted to have uh, Christian Gomez on was because uh, New American, I think, has been really spot on and taking this from the center, and the issue is one of education. If you really understand the history of this, if you understand how this can just completely go off the rails and, and the danger of this, and I'll just say this, uh, just as I said yesterday, a lot of people say, well, it doesn't matter. We don't have a constitution right now and they're not following it. And of course they don't follow it to nullify, uh, laws that are happening out there, but it is important for us. Okay. We do have them back. Okay, good. Let's, let's go back. Uh, we lost you there for a second, uh, Christian. Um, but, uh, go ahead and continue where you were. Uh, we were talking about, uh, the conventions. Go ahead. Yeah, I'm sorry. Uh, I don't know what happened with my internet connection, but anyway, what I was saying was that um, you're going to have a lot of blue states, New York, et cetera, send delegates to such a convention, and even the so-called red states that we think are so conservative. If you look at the leadership of a lot of the legislatures of those states, you have a lot of you know rhino establishment uh, people in charge. 
in a state like Wisconsin, we have, which is where JBS is, uh, our headquarters, Robin Voss is our uh, um, assembly speaker. And he is a, a deeply part of the establishment. He's someone who, uh, the day after he won his primary uh, not too long ago, he shut down all of the investigations into the 2020 election. Um, so these are the kind of people who would be in charge of sending Republican delegates assuming the convention of states is accurate in their assessment that only state legislators will be delegates because article 5 doesn't say it will be state legislators but um it could you know there's uh, there's other methods to consider but nevertheless uh, the convention isn't going to be controlled by only the most conservative republicans uh, uh, you know look at how most states reacted to the covid tyranny most state legislatures did not push against their governors most state legislatures did nothing all these years about you mentioned before abortion and how the 10th Amendment and even Article 6 of the Constitution duty bounds them to nullify unconstitutional federal acts. For all these years and decades, state legislators have sat down and let the federal government uh, control the show. So would state legislators, assuming that they're even the delegates, would they even uh, restrain the federal government as we're supposed to believe? Of course not. They haven't stood up before. They're not going to stand up all of a sudden now. That's a good example when we look at 2020. Uh, you take, uh, I think one of the best examples of that I've, I've mentioned to people many times because I want to get people over this idea. Well, it was just the Democrat governors who did it to us. It's like, no, the money was coming from Trump. He kept the money coming. So he agreed with it. But if you look at Idaho, for example, Brad, uh, little, who is the governor there, uh, was given money from the federal government from Trump. That was several times the entire budget of the state. And it was to be used at his own personal discretion. And so when the Republican legislature that was not meeting that year, and it's interesting that they chose a year in which a lot of Republican legislatures were not meeting, uh, several of them, like uh, Idaho and Texas, only meet every other year. So they were going to come back to stop this uh, emergency order that was there. And he told them they couldn't come back. And so they didn't come back. And then he wrote some legislation for them, which was really very bad, and told them to come back. And they rubber stamped it. So... Having a Republican governor, having a Republican legislature didn't do anything for us throughout 2020. Uh, just a handful of people. And when you look at the trillions of dollars that were spent, Christian, you only had one congressman who stood up to that at the time, and that was uh, Thomas Massey. And what happened to him? Well, you know, Trump was so furious at him, he wanted to primary him out. But all the rest of the people just rubber stamped trillions of dollars for, to subsidize all these unconstitutional things that are being forced on us in 2020. That's what people need to think about when they think about a constitutional convention. You know, forget about the Democrats. Of course, the Democrats are going to have a big say, as you pointed out. But just take a look even at your Republicans and how you were betrayed in 2020. I think that's one of the key things to remember, isn't it? Yeah, when you look at, just look at who's supporting the convention. Look at which Republicans are supporting it and which are the Republicans opposing it. When you look at the Republicans supporting it, People like Rick Santorum, David Walker, um, uh, people like uh, uh, Jim DeMint. These are people whose voting records are not constitutionalists. When you look at those who oppose this thing, like Thomas Massey, he opposes the Convention of States, Constitutional Convention, uh, to be accurate in the terminology. Uh, he opposes it. He's one of the most constitutional uh, rated members of, of the U.S. Congress. Also, even former uh, the late U.S. Senator Barry Goldwater. He warned against calling a constitutional convention in the 70s when uh, states like Arizona, his home state, wanted one for just a balanced budget amendment. He strictly warned that you'd have everyone up uh, left and right, up and down, trying to get their two bits in the convention, and that he doubted that whether our republic could even survive. 
That's right. Coming out of a constitutional convention. That's right. So that's yeah. the kind of people who oppose this thing. Goldwater, uh, Thomas Massey, the John Birch Society, Phyllis Shafley, Eagle Forum, um, and our, our good friends even at the Guard of the Constitution, like Sean Meehan and uh, Robert Brown with the John Birch Society. These are constitutional folks here, and we're the ones warning you, hey, let's not do this. If you, if you love the Constitution, don't open up Pandora's box to allow the left and the rhino establishment uh, fiddle with it because it's not going to be good for us at the end. I agree. I agree. I, I look at this, and, and as I've said many times, uh, a lot of people will say, why are you even talking about the Constitution? Because it's gone, right? Uh, and, and But it's there as uh, for two reasons. It's there as a model of what we need to get back to, number one. And number two, because these people have ignored it, they don't have any authority. And that's one of the things that we need to understand, that uh, uh, authority is on the side of the Constitution. They still acknowledge that, and they still swear to uphold that as a condition of their office. So when they don't uphold it, uh, that gives us uh, the uh, moral high ground, which is very important, that we're acting in a moral and legal way. And it is a uh, great model for us to try to get back to. Uh, but the, the danger is that they will take that away. And if they take that away and we no longer have that to even hold up as a mirror to their hypocrisy, as a mirror to their rebellion and their oath-breaking, if we don't have that anymore because they completely rewrite it to, their, to, to suit themselves, uh, that is a, a very dangerous situation uh, indeed. So thank you so much for joining us, uh, Christian. And um, thank you for what the uh, the newamerican.com, uh, where you're writing there, John Burr Society, uh, you guys have uh, really been on point in terms of defending the Constitution from this very dangerous rewrite. Uh, they're, they're doing enough to rewrite it and ignore it as it is, but we don't want to make that an official thing, which is, I think, what, what would come out of this. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, thank you so much for having me on. Thank you. Common Man. They created Common Core to dumb down our children. They created Common Past to track and control us. Their Commons Project to make sure the commoners own nothing. And the communist future. They see the common man as simple, unsophisticated, ordinary. But each of us has worth and dignity created in the image of God. That is what we have in common. That is what they want to take away. Their most powerful weapons are isolation, deception, intimidation. They desire to know everything about us while they hide everything from us. It's time to turn that around and expose what they want to hide. Please share the information and links you'll find at thedavidnightshow.com. Thank you for listening. Thank you for sharing. If you can't support us financially, please keep us in your prayers. TheDavidKnightShow.com have this evolved society where all are equal.
except for the unvaccinated versus the vaccinated. 31-year-old is in desperate need of a heart transplant. Because he has not received his COVID-19 vaccination, he is no longer eligible according to the hospital policy. Hospitals began firing or suspending healthcare workers for defying a state order to get the COVID-19 vaccine. I have not had a vaccination. I did not want to have a vaccination. October 7th, 2021, I watched as one of the major hospital systems in New York fired 1,400 hospital workers for refusing to get an experimental vaccine. As COVID cases spread and emergency rooms fill up, hospitals have to make some tough choices about who gets seen and who doesn't. About a year ago, there's a mother called me up, was in tears because she could not get her six-year-old daughter into the pediatrician's office because her six-year-old was unvaccinated. These people have been basically discarded like waste for refusing to let someone else mandate what goes into their body. This is insane. Being told what you can or can't do. I mean, this is not a left or a right issue. This is a very simple, are we a society that values the constitution, the bill of rights, the fundamental concepts that America was built on. The medical industrial complex is broken. The worry, the paranoia, the fear, the expenses, the wait times, government overreach, mandates, lockdowns, tyranny. And it just could not sit with me. And I was like, this will not stand. Let's bring in Adam Hartage, CEO of Remote Health Solutions, a veteran himself. Adam. Mr. Hartage, first of all, I want to thank you for your service to our nation. Hospital systems become overburdened. The world is going to look more and more frequently towards telehealth. Medical is one of the pillars of society that must hold. Honest, ethical medical care, access to that care must hold or society does not maintain itself. We're gonna figure out how to hire every single healthcare worker in this country that stood against medical tyranny and were fired as a result of it. We're gonna offer a service that allows patients to be seen by those people. Complete remote virtual diagnostic examination of a patient anywhere on the globe. All right, and joining us now is uh, Adam Hartage. He is CEO of Remote Health Solutions. You can find out more information about it at rhsusa.com. Uh, it's a great documentary. That's just one small part of it, laying out the problems. Uh, thank you for joining us, Adam. Great to have you. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on the show. I appreciate it, David. You know, we've been looking at the meltdown of our medical system for the last 866 days as we've had these lockdowns and, you know, ch channeling people into one choice and one choice only. We've seen people purged out of the medical system, as you addressed in that clip. You're going to hire uh, the, the people with integrity uh, who have been pushed out of that. You want to bring them in with this. And we've been looking for solutions. And, and you started this actually before the lockdown began, didn't you? Uh, yes, sir. We've been in business for about five years. Uh, but what was really interesting is, so we started out as a technology company. We've always been in the telemedicine and, and healthcare space, but we've never really been focused in the direct consumer sort of retail e-commerce business. And it wasn't until last year when they started firing uh, healthcare workers for standing up against medical tyranny. I came into the office and I told everybody that we were going to change everything about the way that we did business. And they said, what does that mean? And I said, we're going to build Noah's Ark for medicine. And they said, that's great. But what does that mean? And I said, I don't know how we're going to do it, but we're going to find a way to hire all of the uh, providers that, that had the backbone and the integrity to stand up against um, medical tyranny. And what was most interesting about that, David, is 
Uh, I never understood the biblical term like casting pearls to swine before. Mm-hmm. And, and that, that, that term just kept spinning around in my head over and over and over because it made so much sense. I mean, you've got these, these doctors, these nurse practitioners, nurses, uh, you know, PAs, on and on that have been trained and have served for a year, a decade, 20 years. Uh, I mean, with incredible experience, these people have. And I just said, wait, these are the most talented people ever. And you're just going to let us, you're just going to let us have them. Like we can, we can <laughs> work with them in our network. I was like, how, how stupid are you people? That's right. And uh, so now we've got probably about 150 providers in our network. And, and frankly, I'll tell you that, you know, as a company, as a network, we fear God first, we support the constitution second, and uh, they like to provide medicine third. So well, you know, I think I, it, it tends to work well in that order. Absolutely. It was only about a week and a half ago that I talked to a physician who is a listener to this program, and he left the hospital, as many of them did, you know, after decades yes. of uh, working there because he wasn't going to have them dictate how he's going to practice medicine. And we're seeing this over and over again. Uh, we're seeing this from people who are physician instructors. And so the question is, and has been, as we start to look at this corruption and we look at how the bean counters have really taken over the institutions and driven out the actual healthcare providers of people actually know medicine, they're being purged out. Uh, these, these nurses and physicians are being purged out because these guys are making so much money by following the, the, the lockdown orders. They're getting bonuses, uh, for, you know, mm-hmm. using the, the types of, uh, uh, COVID, uh, uh, ventilators and other medicines that are being prescribed by the government and they're taking away the doctor physician relationship. This is, I I found this to be very interesting, Adam, because in our personal experience, we kind of use as a general practitioner, a person who was local to us when we were living in Texas. And, um, for most of the ordinary things, we would go to her and she could pretty much do like 95% of everything that we needed. And, um, then when all this stuff started happening, we started uh, contacting her by phone and if we needed any kind of medical ha- uh, help or the type of thing that you would normally go to a GP for. And then even after we moved out here to, to Tennessee, we'd still contact her a couple of times uh, for something that we had, and, and she was able to give us some help. But she said, yeah, I can't really do that because you're, you're too far away. How does that work uh, in your system with uh, remote health solutions? Sure. And that's, that's a great question, but I'll tell you too, going back to it, you nailed it uh, when you mentioned the money aspect of it. So in all things, we say, follow the money. And, um, we know just taking COVID, for example, uh, the hospital system has a financial incentive for you to have a positive test. They have another financial incentive for you to go get on remdesivir, then to get uh, intubated and thrown in the ICU. And ultimately the biggest financial incentive is when you die. Um, that one's a good six figure payout. Um, whereas if you look at a company and a business model, like we have our financial incentive is to keep you healthy and well and off of our service. So for example, we have, we offer a, a direct access primary care, unlimited program called pocket care. And so if anybody wants to sign up for that, it's $99 for an adult, $50 for a child per month. And, and it provides unlimited access to uh, their medical provider. And, uh, that's within our network. And that's just rhsusa.com slash pocket care if they'd like to sign up. Uh, and what's really interesting about it is if a patient comes to us in our service and they need to see a, our, our doctors maybe six, seven, eight times in a month, that hurts me financially. 
because I don't charge the patient any more money, but I still have to compensate the physician for their time. So I'm the one that gets hurt in that, not yeah, the patient. That's right. And so it's my best, it's in my best interest to keep that patient healthy and well. And so that's when, when we provide advice and guidance, it is, there's no ulterior motive because that patient knows uh, if this clown you know, tells me the wrong thing, he's going to go out of business mm. and, uh, you know, no new shoes for my kids type thing. So we're very excited about this offering. We think this is, um, it is, it is, it is the true sort of liberation of medicine. And we basically just took everything that the existing corrupt medical industrial complex does and we flipped it on its head. So now we put a patient directly in front of the doctor very quickly. They don't have to wait six weeks. They don't have to deal with all the inefficiencies. We have doctors all over the U S licensed in multiple States. So, uh, you can take, we call it pocket care because it's, you know, you take it with you wherever you go. And according to healthcare law in the U S, uh, the physician must be licensed in whatever state the patient is physically located in. That's right. That's so why we can't use our physician. With, that's why we can't use our physician in Texas. You know, we've always used her for these, these types of GP type of things, but now we can't do that anymore. So, uh, you got people in every one correct. of the states. Right. So, or at least licensed in every state. So. Uh -huh. Um, so whereas if you were in a network like ours, you could still, you could still be seen and, and the continuity of care continues. And so again, you talk about that 90% solution model. That's what we do. We handle the 90% of things we handle, you know, it's, it's Sunday afternoon and little Timmy gets sick, uh, you know, and you don't want to go to the ER and spend a thousand dollars just to walk through the door and that's the solution for that. That's not an exaggeration. Uh, <laughs> It's even no. worse than that. My, my wife cut her finger pretty deeply on a, on a can and needed to have stitches. And it was like $2,000, you know, just to go in and do that, mm -hmm. that kind of a physical thing. So it really is what your, what your care does and the, and the way that we've used our, our telecare uh, physician in Texas when, when we were there uh, was kind of to triage things and to have somebody who's a medical professional that you can talk to and, and you can find out, you know, and, and most of the things can be handled. you got a long list of the types of things that uh, people would typically uh, contact someone for. Uh, skin rash, insect bites, sure. nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, constipation. Something immediately happens to you, you can call them up, and, and that's been our experience. So you can kind of walk you through this and, and interrogate you with questions and find out what's going on. You may need to go uh, get some uh, in-person care somewhere, but most of the time, that's not really what is happening. Correct. And, and what we find is uh, most of the time a patient is really looking for advice and guidance and counsel um, and then potentially a prescription, right? So uh, if it needs to go to a prescription, uh, we have an e-prescribe system. We have uh, excellent pharmacy discounts. In fact, the best I've ever seen in the industry at about 35,000 retailers. When you sign up on our service, uh, you're issued a pharmacy discount card, which you can take to any of the big box stores. Uh, if it is something specific to, let's say, COVID, and we do support uh, early and preventive treatment protocols for COVID, things such as ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine, uh, vitamin D, C, B, all those things. And again, I should also say I'm a businessman. I'm not a doctor. Mm -hmm. So don't take this as medical advice to anybody in your audience. If you do want medical advice, come see our doctors, sign up for our program. Uh, and I think it's the best thing since sliced bread. But of course, I'm biased and I'm paid to say that because it's, it's our company. <laughs> Um, but I, I mean, I think it really is, it is great. And it's the, the, the thing that our providers love most and, and that our patients love most is that, um, they are able to be themselves mm -hmm. and, uh, not 
be in a system that is um, trying to force them to sub subscribe to some kind of treatment that they just don't want. It's okay. I've never I never thought in my life I would see anything like this. What we witness yeah. now, but I had I had people calling me constantly with horror stories, literally horror stories about losing a relative, a lost one. It, you know they couldn't get in and see the the individual. They they were refused service or taken off a kidney or a heart transplant list because they weren't vaccinated. I mean, all these, these crazy, crazy, crazy things. So it's absolutely criminal. Uh, we stand in the gap. Yes, yeah. it's absolutely criminal what we've been seeing happening. And I've been reporting on this for the last 800 some odd days. And it only got uh, crazier once they started pushing the vaccine to the exclusion of all other things. I've talked about the lawsuits, people trying to uh, get a sick relative uh, to allow the hospital to allow them to have uh, ivermectin. Uh, sometimes they succeeded and they had really kind of a miraculous turnaround in many cases. But in other cases... The hospital adamantly refused, even to the point of um, being held in contempt by the judge. And it's like, what, what is happening here? What happened to the doctor-patient relationship? But I, I think one of the key things is that anybody, uh, we've all had situations where uh, something comes up quickly and it might be kind of a minor thing, uh, but it is very, very difficult to try to get anything done at uh, these emergency care centers or these, um, you know, mm -hmm. uh, emergency room, but they've got a lot of um, uh, instant care centers and that type of thing. They typically, they don't know you. Uh, and, and so that is a big part of it. And, and so that was one of the things that we found so helpful. It's one of the reasons why I wanted to talk to you about this. But um, yeah, this really, as you point out, is, is a hill to die on. Our healthcare is going to be a hill to die on literally in both different ways, but it is something that we have to focus on and we have to, uh, oppose, but it's important to see that the people like you that are entrepreneurs are coming out with alternative systems, something that is going to be a, a different structure, something that's going to be oriented towards wellness, something where you're going to be able to get consultation mm -hmm. and emergency care from people who know you. That's a, a big uh, change, and, and I'm glad to see that uh, there are solutions that are being put out there, but it really is a, a hill to die on. Talk about your, your background and what got you into this. How did you get into this type of business? Uh, it was an accident. <laughs> so I was a I was a military and a government guy for about twenty years. Uh, I spent most of my career in the special operations and clandestine worlds. Um, much of that post nine eleven, and so I've, I've done four wars and uh, six deployments. And um, I left. I'd always wanted to be an entrepreneur um, after my military service, but I nine eleven kept me in a whole lot longer than I imagined that I would be. Mm -hmm. um, and then when I finally was able to leave the service around oh, 2016, I think it was, um, I, I w enrolled in business school and at the same time happened to uh, have a lucky opportunity to start this company after having um, bumped into an, uh, an American businessman in the Middle East who was getting his FDA clearance in Jordan um, for some new uh, technology that was good for remote medical care. And that literally was the, that's called the virtual exam room. It's like the flagship product that we started with six years ago. And we looked at that and we just said, wow, this is amazing because this, this technology can actually allow, uh, let's say a medic in Afghanistan who's dealing with multiple casualties on a battlefield. It can allow that person to talk in real time uh, over very low bandwidth uh, to a surgeon, you know, 10,000 miles away, let's say at Fort Bragg or something like that. So, mm. so we saw the military implications and and then the implications for the airline industry and for, uh, you know, the offshore 
remote um, oil and, and gas and, and transportation industries. And he said, wow, the sky's the limit with this stuff. Uh, and that's, that's really how the business started. And it wasn't until all this government imposed nonsense and the, uh, nonsense the last two years that, that we said, hey, we're going to pivot and we're going to support all the providers that we can. And we're going to support all the patients that we can. Because people need access to honest care. I mean, yeah. it's, it's very simple. Yeah. Um, and then with Fauci and, and, and the CDC. Yeah. Sorry, with Fauci uh, and the CDC, uh, everybody he, became he, remote, right? Uh, in the last yeah, couple of years. He, he, <laughs> you know, he's talking about his retirement these days. And I think he needs to retire. I think that'd be good. I think he should retire to a 10 foot by 10 foot yeah. cell. Exactly. Um, yeah. Along with uh, Burks and Walensky and the rest of them. That's right. Oh, uh, absolutely. They're all. They're all criminals. That's they're right. all criminals, and it's it's all going to come out how criminal they are, and it's willful criminality, not even negligent. It is willful. That's right. Well, you know, it, it, there comes a time we go through these cycles where people reevaluate the institutions that they've had, and, and this whole lockdown and remote stuff has caused people to reevaluate the way they do education. You know, parents have been able to see some really bad stuff that was going on in their schools and to think about how they want to do that. We've now seen really bad stuff in, that's going on inside the medical establishment, especially in the hospitals. And, and so I, I think that is the, the key thing. It, it really is an opportunity. And so I'm glad that you've uh, uh, seen this opportunity. This is really expanding your remote health as they make everybody go remote. Talk a little bit about the uh, virtual exam room and, and how that uh, works. Because when we've used our remote physician when we were in Texas, uh, we would just do that over the phone and, you know, texting and then mm -hmm. phone calls and stuff like that where they just be an interrogation. What does the virtual exam room look like? Sure. Um, well, the um, the legacy sort of uh, flagship device that would be, or any of the devices in the virtual exam room family, are um, more intense as far as um, diagnostics and including things like uh, a 12 lead EKG or um, a, a remote stethoscope or things like that. And I'll tell you that that's that that technology, uh, while we still absolutely use it, we don't employ it typically for the pocket care network that, that we do, that we use direct consumer. And the reason for that is because uh, modern technology has made it to where, that, you know, whether I'm, I'm looking at my little watch right here to where I can check my own pulse oximetry and my own heart rate, uh, you know, all day long, it's counting my steps and it's also recommending certain things for me. So the, the, the availability of control technology really has taken away the need for us to provide even the hardware devices because so many people now have access to it through an Apple watch, through a wearable, like a Fitbit or, mm -hmm. um, and, and the technology is getting very, very good. If you look at, if you just combine something simple, like uh, a, a simple uh, finger pulse oximeter device with a, a $40 blood pressure cuff that you can get from Walgreens or CVS, you can have 95% of all the diagnostic equipment that you're going to need right there in your own home mm -hmm. to where if you jump on with one of the doctors or whatever else. And so we, we also sell these little kits um, uh, that, that include those things, those devices. So you can have a blood pressure cuff, a temperature probe, a pulse oximeter, uh, and, and a weight scale. Those are really the big things that you need. We also have a remote patient monitoring chronic care management program. But the point of it being technology, while we started out as a really focused on the hardware piece, um, the widespread availability and 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 uh, open market of technology has just really um, 
really sort of democratize people's access to those things. It's, yeah. it's fantastic. So for us, uh, we don't, what we say is we don't really care too terribly much about the platform. Now we just want to have the information. So, uh, so our doctors can, can have, have that, that, that knowledge of what their blood pressure is and then um, either potentially prescribe an increase or a decrease in medications or whatever. Cause Again, wellness is the name of the game for us. That's right. Uh, right. Long-term wellness. So, so, so you're focusing uh, we're more on flexible on how they get there. You're focusing more on the service side of it, and you've now got a large pool of yes, patients sir. and of uh, physicians and nurses who have been excluded uh, because of the politicization of our medical community. And, and so that that's a, a great way to evolve. And as you're you're very right. Uh, People have so many devices now that can measure vital signs in so many different ways. And if you've got some kind of a diabetic condition or some kind of a heart condition, you probably already have something that's going to measure those uh, metrics. And uh, it's easy to get that yep. if, if you don't have it. So uh, one of the key things that you're going to go to one of these emergency services places or to an emergency room is going to be for a referral and, uh, and just to kind of, you know, get a scope as to where things are, you need to have a GP who's going to kind of give you that idea. Um, how, do, how does that work? Yep. Uh, you, you've got people that are in your network. You've got, would you say, 150 physicians or so and, uh, across the U.S. And uh, uh, so they, they are already set up to uh, refer you to individual specialists. Is that how that works? Right. In fact, one of the one of the best, I think, uh, sort of ancillary benefits of being a member in a network like ours is that it doesn't take six weeks to set up an appointment with that uh, GP, if you will. It doesn't take six weeks to get in to to see your doctor, you know, just to have them order a lab set. I mean, we can do all that right there and have it done and to where you're you know, having your labs, your appointment, your prescriptions, everything else next day type service. Uh, and then if you need that referral to a specialist whether it's in our network or just any other specialist that's maybe in a patient's area, they can provide that. And, and it's, it's seamless. It's simple. We just try and deep and, and, and remove the complications from providing medicine. I, I don't know how or why the medical industrial complex got so overly burdened and complicated and unnecessary bureaucratic. Actually, I think I do know why. And it's money. called Obamacare, but <laughs> it's called money yeah. too. Yeah. It's called, everything yeah. is focused on money. Yeah. And that's the thing yeah. I like so about just it. Just follow, follow the money. Yeah. Always right. follow the money. That's right. And, and so yeah. it's, it's a wellness orientation. It, it's a triage service. And of course, uh, uh, you have uh, access to homeopathic, natural medicine, education, empowerment series, and all kinds of education for, for patients as well. Uh, but it is important uh, to, to have somebody who is a medical professional to uh, triage those things and to help guide you along whenever something like that happens unexpectedly. It's a great service. It's a great idea. And uh, I can see this really expanding. And of course, um, you know, it's, it's a monthly thing, right? There, you don't have to sign up for like an annual contract or anything, right? Quit anytime. That's That's, uh, so we, we think it's the first way. It's the most transparent way because transparency in medicine is a big issue these days. Yep. And uh, it, it, you just don't get it a lot of places. So for us, we say we're, we're just not very bright business people because we're willing to not put you in a contract and, we're, and we don't charge very much money. Mm-hmm. So we don't make a lot of money and we don't require any long-term commitments. Um, <laughs> nobody has ever accused me of being... Uh, a really good businessman. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's a, it's a great idea and it's, and it certainly shows that you are confident in people, uh, giving it a try and sticking with it. If they don't have to commit to a, a contract with it, it's on a, on a monthly basis. 
And, uh, and so that, along with the fact that you're focused on a wellness uh, orientation as opposed to a, a sickness model, which what we've seen out the wazoo this last year, they are really focused on getting you sick and essentially yeah. medical kidnapping is what we've seen over the last 866 and days with this COVID stuff. So it is, uh, it's, it's crazy. It, yeah. it is literally, it is crazy. So, it, I mean, one of these days, maybe we should do a documentary series on all of the, all of all the stories that we have had uh, over the last couple of years. And it's heartbreaking. Uh, you know, it's also what's amazing is how much we've been canceled and shut down and shadow banned. So, for example, I'm banned for life on Twitter uh, for <laughs> nothing other than uh, a a um, a clip of myself speaking on OAN was re or was tweeted out by President Trump when he was still uh, president, and that was enough to get me uh, banned for life. Oh yeah, on Twitter, I didn't even send the thing. Yeah, so yeah. Um, there's that. And then, um, uh, you know, Facebook, we've had multiple ads uh, rejected. Our account's been locked. Uh, we've been prevented from uh, promoting our services because we say medical freedom and we say liberated medicine. That's right. And we're not allowed to talk about those things on social media. So we have to be very careful about um, how we phrase things or else we are completely banned. Well, it's um, monopolistic and cartel. So anybody, it's a monopolistic it cartel. It, it, and they don't want it, Sorry. It, well, and it's and it's a communist yes. cartel. I mean, I'm sorry, but like, just even even listen to some of the uh, Project Veritas stuff that's come out. I love it when uh, the guys uh, from uh, Twitter says, "Oh yeah, we don't we don't do free speech at Twitter. We're commie as f." Yeah, you know. That's right. Uh, and yeah. and and I thought, wow, from I'm not I'm not the conspiracy theorist. You said it. I'm just repeating your words. Oh, that's right. You yeah, know? that's absolutely right. No, it is a, a very monopolistic cartel. Uh, they don't want any other opinions out there, and they don't want anybody else uh, helping anybody with health care. And, and so that's the thing that has really been concerning uh, my listeners. You know, it's like we see what it is, but what is the alternative? How do we, uh, you know, where do we go for health care? And, and so I'm, I'm really happy to see uh, that there's an entrepreneurial solution that's being put together. Uh, it's great talking to you, Adam Hartage. CEO of Remote Health Solutions, and you can go to their website. He's got a great documentary talking about, um, you know, what what they offer and um, where we are with this and how to get around this. It's at rhsusa.com, rhsusa.com. Thank you very much, Adam. Appreciate it. Yes, sir. Thank you, David. God bless. Thank you, and good luck to you. We hope uh, for all of our uh, purposes that this succeeds. We want to see a lot of different models out there that are going to get outside of this control system that is not serving us very well. Thank you, Adam. Uh, we'll be right back, folks. Stay with us. Yes. Sir. The Common Man. They created Common Core to dumb down our children. They created Common Past to track and control us. Their Commons Project to make sure the commoners own nothing and the communist future. They see the common man as simple, unsophisticated, ordinary. But each of us has worth and dignity created in the image of God. That is what we have in common. That is what they want to take away. Their most powerful weapons are isolation, deception, intimidation. They desire to know everything about us while they hide everything from us. It's time to turn that around and expose what they want to hide. 
Please share the information and links you'll find at thedavidnightshow.com. Thank you for listening. Thank you for sharing. If you can't support us financially, please keep us in your prayers. TheDavidKnightShow.com